The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Mr. Prince. Oh, yeah. Thanks for being here, brother. I appreciate it. Hey, it's a privilege and honor. Listen, man, you you command a tremendous amount of respect. The more people I talk to you, the more the respect grows. The more people I talk about you, rather. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to meet you and a pleasure to be with you. Likewise, bro. Josh Dubin loves you, too. Oh, yeah. The feeling is mutual. Yeah, I love that dude. Yeah, me too. He's a good man. And the stuff that he does on the side, you know, outside of, of boxing and the stuff that he does with the Innocence Project is really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He's an awesome friend to have as well. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we got a lot of shit here, man. We got <laughs> your loyalty brand. You've got champagne. You've got wine. You've got... Uh, was this uh that's the merlot this is merlot and you yeah. have a cabernet as well and rosé i love a man that's involved in a lot of different things well i'm just trying to diversify my portfolio <laughs> but that's always been the case with you right yeah pretty much so from the beginning yeah you are responsible for a tremendous amount of the music that i listened to especially when i was a young man like you put together the ghetto boys Willie D was on here, and he explained the whole story to us, that you're the one who talked him into being into the ghetto voice. Like, he was like, no, nah, I want to be on my own. He did it as a favor to you. Yeah, that's a true story. That's a true story. I uh, actually had got rid of the other set of ghetto boys because they felt like I was too deep, and they couldn't relate to uh, some of the subject matters I wanted them to write to. And like, what kind of subject matter? Well, just real, uh, real life situations, you know what I mean? Like real street things that I was living. And they were spitting more Tonka toy type of raps, you know. Mm. They, was, they was following the trend of the East Coast at the time. And I realized that we're from the South and we just had different stories. Like what was the stories of the East Coast? Like what was the difference? Well, more commercial. You know, back then the East Coast was more commercial. This was the time when... Run DMC, LL Cool J, you know, the hardcore rap hadn't hit the scene yet. So down south, we were uh, considered rebellious at the time because we came with a different flavor. Mm. You know, we came uh, with ghetto stories. That's one of the reasons I named the group the Ghetto Boys because I knew it was ghettos all around the world that uh, had a voice and we became their voice. Well, it was also, there were songs that, they they were very unconventional, like "Minds Playing Tricks on Me," like that's an unconventional song, like and it shows like a vulnerability, yeah. like talking about the pressure of that life, really fucking you up, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of that in the Ghetto Boys, yeah. It was there was a lot of layers to it. If you looked at it on the surface, you would think just gangster rap, but there was a lot of thinking behind that music. Oh, most definitely, and that was part of what we done together. We brainstormed together because we wanted to make sure we tapped into, you know, everybody that didn't have a voice. You know, a lot of the things, such as the Mind Playing Tricks song, for example, you know, it was a lot of individuals that was, like, numb to that lifestyle of what would actually take place of inner-city kids, and we were able to uh, make that, like, real visual. You, it's, it's fascinating to me all the different things that you've touched. 
you know, that you've gotten into, like, how, first of all, how did you get started in the rap game? Like, what, what got you into I got in the, I got in the rap game because of my brother. His name was Sir rap a So I actually uh, named the company after him. And uh, I was encouraged to do it because, you know, he was a rapper. At the time, you know, I was hustling a different way, and I didn't want my brother in the streets. So I'm like, you go in the studio, I'm going to support you in the rap world. But uh, ultimately, my brother uh, decided not to stay in the rap game and went and got him like 23 years. Wow. Yeah. There's so many stories like that, right? Like dudes had one fit it one foot in and one foot out. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh the rap game is inextricably tied to people that are are in that world, right? You can't you can't fake it in the rap game. It's one of the the rare genres of music that has so many people that are both in and out of that world. Yeah, a lot of uh people fake it to a certain extent, you know, because they tell stories of what they observed or what they saw. You know, a lot of uh, individuals uh, don't hadn't actually lived the rap that they uh, rap about, but they witnessed it from some perspective, so it's real. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's maybe the only music genre that is so connected to crime. If you really stop and think about it, crime and poverty is such a, a an immense part of the rap world. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely a, a a real reflection of what goes on in the world we come from. Yeah, that's one of the most interesting things about it. Like when rap music became really popular, one of the things I was saying to Willie when Willie D was here, I was like, "You are a part. You're a part of a. You're a pioneer of a new art form that." came about like when the ghetto boys came about uh which was like late 80s is that what it was yes when the ghetto boys emerged the, we w- we had only been looking at hip-hop for a decade right it had only been around for 10 years i'm like you were at the ground floor of what is now one of the biggest genres in all of music and it was the, one of the first genres that showed that life and showed the life of these inner city hustlers that were trying to get out and trying to do better for themselves. And in the case of the ghetto boys show the pros and the cons and show the psychological effects of that life. No, a true story. And, um, one of the things we done, like on the East coast and the West coast, you know, they had access to a lot of power where the major record labels were concerned down in Houston in the South period, we had no access to any of that kind of power. So we was left to like figure it out and do it on our our own. So when I laid the foundation uh, in Houston, it was, I basically learned from trial and error. And I had to figure it out and I did, and we laid a foundation that's relevant today. So you got into it to help your brother. And then how did you you get a, a part of the Ghetto Boys? How did that get going? Well, I researched Houston inside out you know I went to like every area in Houston and kind of you know just tapped into all the artists and I ran into Scarface one day I stepped out of a club and he was playing his music for a a DJ by the name of Steve Funyay and I overheard it and I was sold from what I overheard and I basically uh 
took Scarface with me that night. We went to breakfast, and, you know, I, I kind of convinced him that I had a group named the Ghetto Boys that I wanted him to be a part of. And the same thing happened with Willie D. Uh, my barber, I think, was telling me about Willie D. We had the same barber in Fifth Ward, and I got with him and basically uh, told him the same story, and then there was Bushwick. And Bushwick, you know, was around before either of those guys were around, but I just shared my vision with them. It was important that they embrace my vision because I just got rid of a, a group of guys that uh, wasn't feeling me. They told, told me I was too deep. So after that, you know, I just uh, made it my priority to pick these guys up every day. You know, I drove and picked them up every day to make sure they showed up in the studio. So whatever happened with the guys who told you you were too deep? Did they ever call you back and go, oh, we fucked up? <laughs> well, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for two of those guys because, you know, I tell this story all the time. These two guys were, I made a deal with them. If they go to school, I would support them in rap. And they went to school and they would go to my grandmother's house after school every day. And after my brother had left, I kind of lost interest. In, in the music game, and uh, she called me one day, and she said, James, you need to keep your word. These guys are going to school. They're coming here every day practicing, and, you know, I tell everybody, that's how I got blessed beyond my expectations by keeping my word. Keeping your word is a, a theme that you discuss very often. Respect and keeping your word. True. How did you, I mean, how did this evolve for you as, as a man? Like, when... When did this become of extreme importance in your life? Uh, I think uh, it began with my mother, you know, my father. You know, I believe more is caught than taught. So I was mm. observing uh, the things of, of substance, such as respect and things like that. They, they put it in me. So, you know, I tell everybody it's kind of in my DNA to a certain extent. I like that phrase. More yeah. is caught than taught. Yeah. That's true. Real true. Yeah, I I think about that around my own kids. Like, oh yeah, they're they, watching. They observe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and if you slip, like if I'm slipping, my kids let me know. Oh yeah, they let me know, and you're like, oh Jesus, you're paying attention. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know your your other words, your lips gonna have to match your actions. Yes. Yeah. 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 When children think you're a hypocrite, that's a those are rough kids to raise because they don't have any respect for you. True. Yeah. So. You you start out with you had Willie D, you had Scarface, you had Bushwick Bill, and you these guys didn't necessarily know each other. Like Willie knew Willie knew Bushwick from the clubs, but he didn't wasn't tight with them, right? Yeah, it wasn't really even. He didn't really even know him. I think they had a run in, you know, somewhat of a confrontation uh, in the club, but they didn't really know each other other than. We are, I think, drop-kicking Bushwick. <laughs> that sounds like Willie. <laughs> yeah. And how difficult was it to get them together and get them to coordinate and get the music to go well? You know, it was, it was somewhat difficult because everybody was solo artists and everybody wanted to do their own thing. And my thing was to them, okay, let's unite our power. Let's unite our power together. And we become a stronger force than being separate. And, you know, let's do this my way. And after this, we'll do solos. So I think that made sense to him. 
Well, the way Willie talks about you, when Willie was like, I'm going to be on my own, but Jay Prince asked me to do it, so I said, all right. Like, literally that. Like, that's rare. When a yeah. guy like Willie D is like, okay, he respects you so much, he's willing to do that for you, when he wanted to be a solo artist. Yeah, that, that's true, and Scarface as well. But, you know, it, it always been a mutual respect where we all was concerned, and, you know, it made sense. Let's unite the power. You know, that helped. It was that mentality that opened the doors for hope, the whole Houston. Like a lot of artists today try and, you know, separate their powers. They don't understand the unity yeah. of the power is what opened the door for the city. How did you figure that out early on? I just figured it out from being a, 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 a football player, a baseball player, you know, a team player. You know, it's, it's certain uh, ingredients that just work, you know, together versus being separate. Unlike boxing, you know, yeah. boxing, you're in the ring by yourself. Right. Yeah. Well, you, that's another thing you've been involved in, too, which is amazing. You know, you, you've been involved with some of the greatest fighters of all time. Floyd Mayweather, Andre Ward. I mean, um, how, how did you transfer from, well, you started off, you, you owned like a car dealership, right? Yeah. Was that your first big business? Uh, pretty much so. You know, I started off uh, at a car dealership. All my life, I had this uh, love for cars. And me too. And my cousin, you know, by the name of Eric Blakely, he used to uh, put model cars together, all on his dresser. And I didn't have any model cars. I couldn't really afford model cars. But I would look at those cars and be like, Oh, I'm gonna have a car like that one day. I'm gonna have a car like, you know, envision myself in them, in them cars. And I ended up purchasing every car that I dreamt of being in. <laughs> Did you have so, like a checklist? Yeah. 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 And so when you opened up this car dealership, did you do that with that end goal in mind or did you just do it as a business? I done it as a business. The other that was business, the ownership was personal. Uh, I done it as a business because I had relationships with all the the athletes, with all the uh, the D boys, you know, all the hustlers in the streets. So I'm like, I could make some money in the car salesman business. And my uh, my my son, mother, Jazz, his mother, Carla, uh, her father was a car dealer. So everything just kind of connected. And I'm like, okay. And so did you use that to? like as a springboard to get into the rap game? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I became the number one car seller profit-wise on a street called Shepherd Drive in Houston, Texas in one year. You know what I mean? And I couldn't believe it. We all had the same accountant. And the accountant, you know, doing taxi, and she came to me. She's like, you made the biggest profit out of everybody on the... I said, well, how did you know that? How do you know that? She said, because I'm the accountant. I'm like, wow, are you serious? Like, yeah, you made the biggest profit. So, you know, that was inspiring. And this was just because of your relationships with all these other people. Yeah. That they wanted to do business with you. Well, I say relationships and my work ethic, you know, because I, I, I got a relentless work ethic. Yeah. So how do you get into boxing from there? You get you, you get into the rap game with, was the Ghetto Boys your first band? Yeah, pretty much so. The Ghetto Boys were my first uh, group. Uh, when boxing came along, boxing was my first love. You know, I, I, I got distracted by the music game because of, I mean, by boxing because of the music game. I always wanted to uh, be a boxer, but it wasn't any gyms in Fifth Ward. 
you know. So I always say to myself, if I ever make it, I want to build a boxing gym, a recreation center in my hood. And that's what I've done. And shortly after I'd done that, I had an opportunity to go in the gym and I started watching the amateurs. And uh, I just kind of fell in love with boxing all over again, and which ultimately led me, I prayed for a champion. Everything I uh, tried to accomplish in life, I always exercised prayer. It worked for me. So uh, I prayed for a champion, and uh, I set up a meeting with Mike Tyson in Las Vegas, and I went to Las Vegas. What year is this? This had to be 99 or 2000. So, you know, I, I, I knew a friend that knew Mike, and Mike, you know, accepted the invitation because he was familiar with my movement where Rapalot was concerned. And I flew out there uh, with my focus on Mike, and, man, I walked into him sparring, and I was like, you know, I was on cloud nine because I had never saw him, you know, in person sparring. It was always at a fight. And I walked in, and he was throwing leather with another heavyweight, and I was like, starstruck <laughs> and in the midst of watching this sparring uh floyd mayweather came in the gym and floyd you know i didn't know who he was he kept coming to me yo jay yo jay uh man i know i know i know about your group you know he was calling groups out i'm like oh okay thanks bro thanks bro i'm zeroing back in on mike boom 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 floyd come over again yo jay yo jay yo jay man i, I know about <laughs> this group here man and and, and Jay, if you want to do something later on, you know, this is my number. I'll come pick you up. I'm like, all right, brother. Okay. Focus on Mike. I don't know who Floyd is, right? right. <laughs> so afterwards, you know, me and Mike go to his house to have the meeting that I came to have because my objective was to become his manager, to be on his management team. And he and I met for an hour. He got his ex-wife on the phone. And, you know, I was pretty much convinced I was on the team after – the meeting and everything took place and, uh, you know, hung with him all night. The next day uh, I tried to reach Mike and I couldn't reach Mike. And I was left uh, with Floyd. Number, and I asked my friend, I said, who, who number is this number right here? He said, oh, that's Floyd Mayweather, the 130-pound champion. So, bam, a red light went off in my head because I prayed for a champion. Long story short, me and Floyd was in business together less than a week. That's crazy. I was his manager. You didn't even know who he was? I didn't know. No idea. That was when he was Pretty Boy Floyd. Yeah. That was before Money Mayweather. Exactly. Yeah. He had a totally different style back then, too. He was much more aggressive. Went for the knockout war. Yeah, well, I think he used his legs a lot more then. But if he saw the opportunity, he definitely went in for the kill. But, you know, his whole image was different before yeah. I came about. Well, he had a lot of hand problems, right? Like, he's had several hand breaks. Yeah, well, I don't know about a break, but I know uh, we eventually had to get a specialist to wrap his hands because, you know, he would hurt them a lot. Yeah. And do you think that affected his style? Is that, like, because he developed a, a very defensive style as he got older? Uh, I think that's a part of uh, confidence. I think that's a part of uh, evolving as a fighter. You know, in the beginning, I think Floyd used his legs much more. Mm -hmm. But as he evolved with experience, he got comfortable, you know, with Shoulder the defense. Shoulder roll and yeah. defense. 
Yeah. Greatest defense of all time. Oh, man. And of all time. Not, yeah, I agree. I had my friend Andrew Schultz on here yesterday. We were talking about it. We are like, he might have got hit hard four times in his career, which is insane. 50-0 yeah. and 0 and got tagged four times, which oh. is unthinkable. No, he's amazing, but his work ethic is amazing. You know, the guy got to work. You know, I've had opportunity to, like, witness a lot of fighters' work ethic. Andre Wards and Floyd Mayweather work ethic is unlike any fight I ever saw. Yeah, you don't get there without it. Exactly. Because there's so many talented people. There's so many athletic people. There's so many fierce dudes. But to be a champion, yeah. you need everything. You need gifts. You yeah. need athletic gifts. You need a sharp mind. You need a, a passion for the technical aspects of the game. But you got to have that ethic. If you don't have that work ethic, you don't... You never keep it going. You, you you always fall short of your expectations. And without naming any names, we all know those champions that could have been great, but they got fat in between camps yeah. and they just never trained as hard as they should have. And yeah. I mean, some of the all-time greats suffered from it. Like Roberto Duran after he beat Sugar Ray Leonard. Yeah. He, and, and Sugar Ray knew it, capitalized on it, and forced a quick rematch when he knew that Duran was fat. Durant is partying and drinking, and yeah. a guy like Floyd Mayweather never did that. No, nah, never nah, he, got out of shape. Man, he would, you know, Floyd was the type of fighter that would party with everybody, but no drinking, no smoking. Mm. He sit back and watch and observe the whole movement. I remember watching a video of him leaving a club in Vegas. It showed him at the club, hanging out with everybody, leaving the club at two in the morning, running. Oh yeah, we with, used to with do that all on. the time. Yeah. Regular yeah. pants on. We would watch fights together, and right after fight, he was ready to run. Yo, Jay, yo, ain't nobody going to catch me slipping. The only way they can beat you is catch you out of shape. They ain't going to catch me slipping. Take off running down the strip. It's amazing. And having his brother or having, uh, having his uncle Roger and having his father, you know, two world-class fighters and having grown up seeing these guys seeing his his uncle when when roger mayweather was a champion he had a vicious style he was you know his right hand was a thing of beauty i mean people forgot like i, I was watching some roger mayweather fights the other day and to have his father a guy who you know gave sugar ray leonard a hell of a fight yeah there's so much talent and so much knowledge and understanding of boxing in that family to grow up with that and to have that mindset like Floyd has where he's observing and watching everything. Mm -hmm. That dude just absorbed everything. Oh, yeah. And not only watching, he had to spar with Roger. Mm. So you, you talking yeah. about, you know, having to learn how to protect yourself against the best yeah. as a kid. So, you know, he had access to a lot of power and evidently, you know, there's no doubt about it. It benefited him in a major way. It's just amazing when you see that consistent formula of, of work ethic, that work ethic is, there's no getting around it. Everyone who gets great at everything and maintains that greatness has to have that work ethic. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. Even Michael Jordan explained, you know, how he exercised his work ethic. You know, I tell a, a lot of people your work ethic, you know, has to match your talent. Oh, Jamie brought over some glasses. Here we go. Oh, wow. Some, try some of this wine out, sir. Loyalty. Yeah. All right. All right. What are, you, are you a Merlot man or a Cabernet man? Well, I'm both of them. What so do you prefer? It's up to you. Let's try some Cab. All right. Which one is this? One? This Merlot. This is the Merlot. Right. 
Where are you uh, growing this stuff? I'm in Paris, in France. Really? You know? Yeah, I'm getting them good grapes. You got a relationship of... with people in Paris, too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> most definitely. I, I even it. have a heavyweight uh, by the name of Tony Yoko, the 2016 gold medalist. It's from Paris. Really? So, yeah, that's my fight as well. Is he training here in America or is he training in France? Both. Both. Mm. Yeah, he come and go. How does that work now with COVID? Is he is well, he stuck over there? Yeah, as of now, he been over uh, in uh, in Paris for the last few months. So I think he'll be back in February or March. Yeah. The the boxing business is a crazy business because boxers are crazy. Like there's <laughs> there's no way. You know, you got all the dedication and all yeah. the you know hard work and intelligence and ring IQ, but you also have crazy people. Yeah, but it's it's no uh, worse or no crazier than the music industry. Right. So you're prepared you know? for it. Yeah, oh. I'm kind of. I've been prepared, and uh, there are two uh, cutthroat businesses. Cheers, sir. Health, wealth, and love. Health, wealth, and love. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah. That's very good. Nice. Smooth. Right? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of wine. I don't know right. too much about it, but that's yeah. very smooth. Yeah. What part of France has this grown? Oh, man. You know, I don't know exactly the part, but it's in, uh, it's in France, and I went through a lot of grapes to come up with this blend, you know. It's... Uh, it's so you personally proper. involved in selecting everything oh, as yeah. well? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Do you... From do you know a lot about wine? Do you have a background in wine? Or do you just know what you like? Well, let me tell you the story how I got in the wine business. Uh, you wouldn't, you're not from Texas, but those that are from Texas know, remember this doctor definitely in Houston by the name of Dr. Red Duke. He was a surgeon in Houston. Uh, and I heard him speak about the health benefits where wine was concerned one day. And, you know, he was talking about the... Uh, <clears throat> how wine is good for your heart, your blood, the antioxidants, you know, all of these things. And I became, you know, kind of sold where wine was concerned. And during my winding downtime, I started sipping a little bit. And ultimately, that led me to Napa Valley, where I was able to uh, go to quite a few vineyards. I was actually negotiating on purchasing a vineyard. So I got an opportunity to view things from the business perspective and that kind of led me to where I'm at today. That's a serious baller move when you own a vineyard. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. That's why I don't trust the governor of California. Mm. He owns a vineyard. I'm like, get the fuck out of here, bro. <laughs> you're supposed to be serving the people. You're not supposed to be balling. Yeah. When you own a vineyard, you're a baller. Yeah. That's a baller move. You're out there sipping, cheers, like, right. with people. Yeah. Someone's bringing over hors d'oeuvres. Right. You can only imagine they mixing it up a little bit yeah there's definitely <laughs> mixing up that's that's some gangster shit you're owning a vineyard <laughs> you know <laughs> that's that's what you can't trust a politician with a vineyard right i agree yeah <laughs> I, 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 I don't trust them with our vineyard so <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. but with a vineyard yeah there's something about owning a vineyard yeah that's icing on the cake it's a it's a status symbol it's a beautiful status symbol you know um my good friend maynard He's a lead singer of the band Tool. Yeah. Uh, he's got Caduceus Vineyards. He, he owns his own vineyard in Arizona. Beautiful. You know, and there's something about the creation of wine. It's a different kind of artistic pursuit. The, it's an art that your, your taste buds take mm -hmm. in and appreciate. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know? 
Yeah, I, I've developed it. a deep respect for wine. I don't yeah. know much about it, really, unfortunately. I don't have an, a lot of time to really learn about wine, but yeah. I know good wine, and this is very good. Thank you. This is delicious. Toast to loyalty. Mm. Well, you, to you, loyalty. you just said a mouthful, though. The taste buds is the key, Wes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's an art form for your taste. When you get a good glass of wine, and you take that in, you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's smooth. This is this is like a great wine with a steak. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm exactly. saying? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So when you met Floyd, he was the 130-pound champion. Mm-hmm. And did you just immediately start working with him? Uh, yeah, but it was a process, and it, was, uh, it wasn't easy because I came into a situation where his father and his uncle was his manager, and I wasn't embraced. Uh, uh, you know, with with love, you know, because they kind of felt like I was imposing on a situation. He had a $12 million contract on the table at the time I came in that everybody wanted him to sign. And uh, Floyd called the contract a slave contract before I came, but they blamed me for mm. him calling the, the contract a slave contract. So, What was the uh, provisions in the contract that he didn't like? Well, he, he just thought $12 million wasn't enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, ultimately I had to uh, go in and do some damage control. And one of the things that I told him when, you know, when I met him, I said, if I can't make this better, I don't want to eat off of your $12 million that I already been offered to you. So I had opportunity to have a meeting with said Abraham, you know, at the time was the uh, the president of uh, HBO. And I pretty much just asked the guy, you know, how could we get around this $12 million contract? How can I <clears throat> uh, make this a bigger contract? And at the time he told me about the fighter named Diego Corrales. Mm. He was like, you know, if you all would be willing to fight Diego Corrales, then this could jump up to $35 million or so if y'all was able to beat Diego Corrales. And, uh, you know, that was interesting to me. You know, I went home and done some due diligence on Diego Corrales at the time. And at that particular time, Diego had uh, jumped on his ex-wife and kind of beat her up. He had charges, you know, uh, kind of done her pretty bad. But, bad to the extent where he was facing jail time. And, and I saw that, and I went back to Florida. I said, Floyd, I said, it's a perfect time to fight Diego Corrales. I said, I even have a, a marketing tool. We can whoop him for every battered woman in the United States of America. <laughs> so he heard me out, but he wasn't embracing that. No, 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 Jay. It ain't time to do that right now. No, 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 no. So he didn't want to fight Diego because of Diego's skill set? Well... You know, I don't want to say Floyd was scared, but at the time, you know, everybody thought Diego could beat Floyd. He was like 30 and over 29 knockouts. Diego was a wild man. Yeah, Diego was, he was a knockout artist. And he just felt like it wasn't the time. I talked mm -hmm. to him for like four hours and couldn't convince him. So I decided to go home and I went home about six in the morning and I woke up about 11 in the morning with a message from him. Yo, yo, Jay, I hired you, you know, as my manager. And uh, if you think I should fight him, I'll fight him. So it was then where, you know, I was celebrating. Cause I'm like, whoa, we finna get Diego. So I called the people 
at HBO, and they told me they didn't have a date. They wouldn't have a date to uh, next year or something like that. And it was then I decided to use uh, some of my record label uh, talents. You know, I had to build my record company without having video, without having radio, you know, just pulling publicity stunts. So I told Floyd, I said, here's what we're going to do. Uh, Lennox Lewis and David Tour was fighting at the, at the Mandalay Bay. I say, during the press conference, I'm here in Diego supposed to come to that fight. I say, during the press conference, we're going to surround Diego. My head of home is to surround Diego. And I want you to come and just push him, and, and we're going to stop the fight, right? But it ain't going to be no free fight, but you go and get your push in on him. We're going to stop it. We're going to steal the show. That was my objective. And uh, that came to fruition. You know, we went and stole the show at the press conference. That was Saturday night. Sunday, we was on the front page of the uh, Las Vegas time. And, you know, Monday or Tuesday, I called them and they said, oh, we got a date for you. Ah, I love that you're telling me this because I always wonder. I always wonder when I see those kind of altercations, how many of those are coordinated by a wise man who understands publicity? (laughs) Quite a few, I would say. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Why wouldn't yeah. you? You know, it's marketing, yeah. which, which you know brings me to one thing. One of the things that's going on right now with Floyd is he's going to fight Logan Paul, who's mm-hmm. this YouTube star. Which is, it's so crazy that a dude who is a, a YouTube star, who's a good athlete, he's a you know he he's had a a couple of boxing matches and was a very good wrestler. Yeah, he's going to f- box the greatest boxer. Arguably, of yeah. all time. Yeah. I mean, if you want to look at accomplishments, Floyd Mayweather is in the argument as the greatest of all time. Oh, yeah. Boxing is the sport of being hit, or, or hitting, rather, and yeah. not being hit. Exactly. Floyd is the very best ever at that. No one's ever stopped him. No one's ever even come close. I mean, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. What he's done is amazing. And a lot of people say, oh, he waited until Manny Pacquiao was past his prime before he fought him. Well, that's a smart thing to do if you want to stay 50 and 0. I mean, if you look at his career, he fought all the great fighters, but he did it on his terms when he fought Canelo, made Canelo get down like, what was it, like 152, I think it was? Yeah. Like, he's, every move he does is perfectly calculated. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You have to, you know, you just can't make excuses uh, where flawed talent is concerned. He he wanted the best I undeniable. ever saw do it. Undeniable. Yeah. No one, whether whatever your opinion of him is, undeniable how talented he is. Undeniable. No, I mean, <clears throat> he went in and de- demolished Diego Corrales. Yes. But I fell in love with Diego Corrales' heart afterwards. So Diego ended up going to jail and doing like a, a year or two prison time. And I went in prison and signed Diego Corrales. You know, I signed him in Did jail. Did you really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I uh, wow. got the blessings from Floyd. I said, Floyd, you have a problem with me working with Diego? He's like, no, no, he's good, James. Nobody, just because i done him like that don't mean nobody else could do him like that. So, What was that one wild fight he had where he came close to getting stopped and he stopped the dude? It was, oh, yeah. It was the, one of the fights that made him. Oh, do man. you remember who his opponent was? Oh, uh, That was, uh, oh, boy. That's the guy that they thought beat Floyd. You know, everybody say he beat Floyd the first fight. Floyd fought him Castillo. Yes. Yeah, yes. Castillo. 
You know, they claim Castillo beat Floyd the first time and Floyd fought him again and demolished him. Yeah. But that fight was, that was the best fight I ever saw in my life what with him fight. and Diego. What a fight. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. Yeah. And, and I tell Diego you what was, back. yeah, I tell you what was really strange about that. So a couple of years after that, on the same day, Diego got killed almost around the same time, you know, right on the next street behind my Las Vegas place. And I was called, and, uh, you know, his wife was like, somebody say Diego had a motorcycle accident. So I rushed on uh, Fort Apache, and there Diego was on the same exact day, you know, of his biggest victory a couple years later the same day. Mm. Yeah. That was a bummer when he died because there's a lot of those dudes like that that are just wild dudes, and you can't stop them from being wild. Yeah. To have a career like he had, to make the kind of money that he had, and still be just going crazy on motorcycles. Yeah. Like, that what makes them great sometimes does them in is yeah. that that heart, that courage, and the the willingness to face fear. Yeah. And some guys get addicted to that. They just wah, wah, <laughs> they get addicted to that feeling yeah. of just uh, you know it's dangerous. You know you shouldn't be doing it. And you just you can't help yourself. You gun it. Yeah. Yeah, and there's something about the motorcycles that make you want to gun them. Oh, they're you so know, thrilling. The they're too high thrilling. speed, you know. I, I have to watch myself on the bikes. I'm like, man. Do you still ride? Not as much as I used to, but I, I like the Harleys. You know? Yeah, that's yeah. a better move. Yeah. I, Slower, I was, more controlled. That's what I was trying to get Diego on, but he mm. told me that's an old man bike. Oh, well, he's got a point. <laughs> 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 I came real close to getting my motorcycle license, but when I was uh, I was going through the whole thing and you know going through classes, and three people I know, one person saw someone get hit, and two people I know crashed. One one crashed and really fucked up his shoulder. Another mm-hmm. one got hit by a car. Some yeah. old man ran a light and and t boned him and snapped his leg in half. Mm. And I was like, this is just too much. Yeah, I kind of witnessed like three or four accidents in one year that made me decide to slow down on the yeah. right side. I was passing on the highway and I saw this dude laying down. They had a blanket over him. Yeah. And his bike is crashed and he's laying down. He's got a blanket over him, but you can see like his chest and his head. He's still alive. Yeah. And he was just screaming mm. in agony. And I don't know what the fuck was going on under the blanket, but they wanted yeah. to cover it. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. It's a terrible way to go. But when you're on it, it just seems like so much fun. Yeah, it's a it's a high. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a high of freedom and you know the wind and everything. Yeah. You know, it's like flying like a bird. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just went there for a minute. I know. <laughs> yeah. I, I could, so many fighters love them. You know, and again, it's the thing. It's like what attracts them to fighting in the first place is they're, you know, they're the type of people that face fear. They yeah. they they enjoy overcoming fear. They enjoy the thrill, right. you know? Floyd never fucked with bikes, though, did he? Nah. Too smart. Yeah. Yeah, no, he never done Too that. smart, yeah. you know? You know, the uh, the Diego Corrales fight with Floyd was a, was a defining fight. But, you know, one of the things that when people point to uh, to Floyd, I say, look at the Maidana fights. Because Maidana gave him some difficulty in the first fight. But in the second fight, Floyd boxed his ears off. Yeah. Floyd put on a clinic in that second yeah. fight. And that shows you a guy who went back, looked at the fight, didn't enjoy his performance. It was too mm-hmm. close. 
and decided I'm going to fuck this dude up in this rematch and I'm going to do everything right this time. If you observe Floyd real closely, normally the second half of all his fights, he cracked the code mm-hmm. where a fighter is concerned. No, no matter how close it was, yep. the second half, he cracks that code and going into that second fight, he going to figure it out. Same way Andre Ward. Yep. You know, he was the same way. Like Kovalev, right? Exactly. The first fight's close. The second yeah. fight's what wasn't close at all. No. The crazy thing about Andre Ward, and I have, I've had Andre Ward on the podcast before, is that Andre fought most of his career with one arm. Yeah. And people didn't even know. No. They had no idea. He literally didn't have a right arm. That's true. He fucked everybody up with a left hand. <laughs> it's it's true. crazy. That's true. Guys like Carl, Froch, yeah. And, yeah. and even Kovalev in the first fight. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing what he accomplished. Yeah, big ups to Andre Ward. He just got... He's amazing. You know, they just injected him to the Hall of Fame. So, Did they? Yeah. He's a, a unique human being. Yeah. Very unique because when Canelo knocked out Kovalev, there was a lot of talk for, uh, you know, Andre is still young. He's still in his prime mm-hmm. as a human being. He could absolutely fight right now if he wanted to. Yeah. But he decided that he would be better serving boxing as a commentator and as a man with perfect faculties intact. Yeah. Retiring undefeated as a champion, two-division champion, gold medalist yeah. in the Olympics. Perfect. Yeah. No problems. Yeah. When you look at him and when you hear him talk, there's no cognitive decline. Mm-mm. He's smooth. He's articulate. He's an outstanding gentleman. Yeah. Like as a human being, he's a, a very religious, devoutly religious person. Yeah. He's a stunning human being, man. He is. He really is. No, in real life. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. talking about from a close-up. Yeah. You know, he, he the same way inside and outside the ring. He actually, you know, it was a lot of millions he walked away from. A lot of millions. <laughs> a lot. You know what I mean? Because he was the guy that made the most sense. If Canelo is going to have a light heavyweight super fight, he's not really a light heavyweight. Everybody knows that. He stepped up and fought Kovalev, but Kovalev was kind of on the decline, and he fucked him up and stopped him. Yeah. But if you wanted to have a guy who's like the perfect foil yeah. for Canelo at light heavyweight, it's Andre Ward. Most definitely. It's Andre Ward. I mean, that would have been amazing. If they were in their prime, my God, what a fight that would have been. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Who are you liking that fight? I would never bet against Andre Ward. <laughs> I just wouldn't bet against him. I just mm-hmm. wouldn't bet against him. Yeah. I, I don't know if I bet against Canelo right now, though. I'll tell yeah. you. Oh, he's a beast. Listen, I would watch that fight like this. Yeah, no, he's a beast. He's Canelo a beast. is a different human being post-Floyd. Yeah. If you watch the Danny Jacobs fight, Danny Jacobs is throwing missiles at his head. Yeah. And he's just standing in there moving and... Yeah. And beautiful head movement. Beautiful. Yeah. Which, you know, he had a little bit of that early in his career. But post-Floyd, yeah. his defense just rose considerably. Once he realized, like, that dude was in front of me and I couldn't do shit. <laughs> you know? Like, that's that rub <laughs> yeah. that you get when you fight a real world champion. Right. Not a world champion, but a greatest ever world champion. Yeah. When you realize, like, wow, there's fucking levels to this thing. Yeah. Make yeah. you better. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, and it definitely made Canelo better. I mean, Canelo was going to get better no matter what, but there's no question that post-Floyd, it's a different Canelo. Yeah, no, I just hope Floyd leave him alone and don't fight him at this point. He's huge now. He's so big. He's so big. Yeah, Floyd's smart. He would never do that. I mean, he's fighting at 175, you know? Mm -hmm. I think this, this weekend's fight is 168, though, correct? 
I think so. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> the uh the gentleman is fighting Callum is like he's like six four put pull up the video of uh Canelo Alvarez. There's a face off between Canelo Alvarez and uh this weekend's uh opponent. It's crazy how tall this dude is. Like it's it's an interesting fight just based on just the physical aspects of it. Yeah, that guy's a, a quality fighter too. Yes. It's not a you know, gonna be easy for him, I don't believe. No. And he's a dude that's a natural 168. And you yeah. look at Canelo having started his career as a super, as a, uh, a junior middleweight. Look at this. Look at that. Wow. Look at Callum Smith. Look how big he is. That's crazy. If he know how to use that reach properly, it can be a long night. Well, Canelo has that nasty left hook. That yeah. left hook to the body and tight is. Yeah. That, that's a big gentleman. Wow. Yeah. And he's a very, very good fighter. But, you know, that's what I admire about Canelo is yeah. that what he's, that's what he's looking to fight. He's looking yeah. to fight the guys like Danny Jacobs, yeah. the guys like Calum Smith, the guys like, you know, uh, Sergey Kovalev. I mean, he's looking to fight the, the best fights that are available that's for true. him right now. Yeah, that's true. You know, he's, he's something special right now. But I think he became something special. Like, really, a lot of it was because of that Floyd fight. Because Floyd oh. shut him down. Yeah. If you look at yeah. Canelo in every other fight, it's, yeah. he's a wrecking machine. And that fight, he looked like a guy was just puzzled. Yeah, he was puzzled. Yeah. Confused. He didn't know what to do. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. That, I love that. I love seeing when, when people achieve a level of proficiency that's so powerful yeah. that a, a world champion is standing in front of him and go, fuck, man, I got a lot yeah. to learn. Yeah. Yeah. True statement. There's levels to it, man. And I, I, I witnessed Floyd do that over and over to yeah. fighters that thought they were the best. And even in sparring, they're like, whoa. Do you think it's crazy now that he's fighting YouTube stars and shit, though? Mm, I mean, he's I, making a lot of money. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant in that regard, like yeah. the Conor McGregor fight. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually kind of like him not, you know, fighting a lot of these young guys. You know what I mean? I think it's good business moves. And, you know, he's older than this guy. And he's smaller. A than lot that guy. smaller. That dude's so big. I think the scale balanced off somewhat. You know, the guy younger and he's bigger, so he's huge. Yeah. This dude's a two hundred pound guy. <laughs> Heavyweight. It's crazy. Yeah. The the fact that he's doing this is crazy. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he's doing this in Japan. Mm. Japan doesn't give a fuck. Did you see that fight that he fought with uh Tenshin Nazukawa? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was ridiculous. Yeah, was that crazy. guy Tenshin is a badass kickboxer, like a really good kickboxer. Mm. But he's 126 pounds. Mm. He's a tiny little dude. And the the Japanese people, they love freak shows. Yeah. They put on some wild during the mixed martial arts heyday of Japan, they put on some wild fights, man. They had like 300 pound dudes fight 100 pound dudes. Wow. They didn't give a fuck. They're like, "Let's <laughs> let's make some crazy shit happen." Yeah, anything goes. They really did. They had yeah. this guy uh Minotaro Nogueira who was uh at the time the heavyweight champion of of Pride. Right. And he was like a regular size heavyweight, like maybe 240, 240 pounds, and he fought Bob Sapp, wow. who was 375 pounds with abs. Wow. Just chock full of Mexican supplements, just smashing people. Yeah. And they they had this crazy freak fight, and they did a lot of that in Japan. Japan enjoys watching these people fight that are uh, mismatched size-wise. They mm -hmm. enjoy that for whatever yeah. reason. So they enjoyed seeing tension go over there and, and fight Floyd in a boxing match. Yeah. Where he's not really a boxer, he's a kickboxer. 
and you know to fight the best ever right when he's 20 30 pounds heavier than you it's just ridiculous well we saw what happened yeah well <laughs> floyd looked like he didn't even train for that fight <laughs> no you didn't have to <laughs> you know the guy is a genius at what he does and uh he knew just what to do just let me walk yeah. him down what was funny when you see him smiling when you see him smiling at him and walking forward yeah it's like an execution yeah. <laughs> well, Floyd is he's brilliant at that, you know, like ma- maximizing his profits in his later years. You know, I mean, this that fight was an exhibition, but the Conor McGregor fight was a legitimate fight. Yeah. Which is crazy. A guy with zero professional fights ever yeah. steps in there against a guy who was 49 and 0 at the time. Yeah. <laughs> They say, show me the dollar. Well, Floyd is so good at marketing. He's just so smart at that. Yeah. Did he learn a lot of that shit from you? Um, I think uh, we taught one another a lot of things. You know what I mean? But he definitely uh, took things to a whole different level with what he done and yeah. accomplished. Yeah. Um, but what happened with you guys? You guys had a falling out, right? Well, I think it was more so uh, the group of guys he was with. Mm-hmm. And some of my guys, you know, and I, I wrote about it in in my book, The Art and Science of Respect. Yeah, I uh, I wrote about that story. Basically, uh, you know, they had convinced him to uh, uh, not want to pay me after all the mm-hmm. creative work that was put in. And, you know, I uh, was able to uh, change his mind. <laughs> That's what I heard. Yeah. But you guys are still cool. Yeah, yeah no, That's we're beautiful. cool. That's the homie. It, yeah, beautiful. You know, it never was about he and I. You know, we just uh, uh, had to agree to do the right thing, and we was able to do that. And hey, that's the homie. It's unfortunate that you know he didn't recognize your talents and uh, have you stay involved with them. You know. Well, you know, or I, that his people didn't. Yeah, I should say. You know, I, I enjoyed the journey. I was with him for four years, and I helped lay the foundation that he was able to build off of. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful for, I was grateful for that because that ignited my whole career where boxing was concerned. So, you know, life goes on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who you, you work with Shakur Stevenson right now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have Shakur Stevenson. Oh, man, I got... How many fighters do you have in your roster currently? I think like, like fourteen fighters. I have, and uh, I love that this is a passion project for you. Oh that man, you, this is not like your main source of income by any means. This is just something you truly enjoy. Yeah, no, I really love this. I have Shakur Steven, Tony Yoka, Jared Anderson, Tucker, Jahad Tucker, Julian Rodriguez, Mozzie, Duke Reagan, Troy Isley. So all levels. Oh man, I got all some levels. Of the best man. I'm, yeah. I've, what I've done and what I'm doing right now is actually uh, making a move to take over. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm predicting in 2021, 22, I should have a champion at every weight. Now, do you have interest in your management and promotion? Do you have interest in putting on shows? No, no. You know, in boxing, you can only choose one or the other. Right. You can't participate in, in both worlds. So I'm a manager. I negotiate against the promoters. I protect the fighters. That's the big issue with fighters. That's why I was going to get to that. Is that fighters seem to have more conflicts. Like, the shit that happened with Bob Arum and Terrence Crawford, that that turned my stomach. 
when you got a guy as good as Terrence Crawford, who legitimately could be one of the all-time greats, it might be already, one of the rare, like, a switch hitter who's just as good orthodox as he is at Southpaw, figures everybody out, beats everybody, and then he talks crazy shit like about losing money promoting his fights like what the fuck are you talking about maybe you're doing a shitty job promoting him you got in your roster one of the greatest of all time a real stone cold killer yeah terrence crawford is a stone cold killer oh man and you should be singing his praises knocked out kel brook with a jab yeah. I mean, it was basically a jab. Yeah, it was a jab. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's crazy. And then just, I mean, that's what started the party and then beat the fuck out of him afterwards. But he's something really unique. Yeah. No, Terrence is one of a kind. You know, no doubt about it. He's a special fighter. But for Bob Arum to say that, I was like, it turned my stomach. I was like, what are you doing? How can you say that? Like, keep that sh- If you're losing all that money, like, keep- first of all, keep that shit to yourself. But what you should be saying is, how good is Terrence Crawford? You should be letting everybody know. You should be shouting it from the mountaintops. Look how good this guy is. We can't get this guy fights because people are terrified of him because of this. Because he knocks out Kell Brook with a jab. Because hmm. he fucks everybody up. He figures people out. He figures you out orthodox. Then he switches up southpaw on you and starts beating the brakes off you. He's something really unique. I'm yeah. a giant Terrence Crawford fan. Me too. Love that dude. I can't wait to see him fight Errol Spence. Woo! Is that going to be interesting? Yeah. Especially after Spence, his his recent victory over yeah. Danny Garcia. Yeah. Yeah. Spence yeah. is something special too. I thought when that car accident happened, I thought, oh my God. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. What's crazy is he survived because he didn't have his fucking seatbelt on. Hmm. That's what's crazy. That's real crazy. I think he, well, let's go further than that. He survived because the creator protected him. <laughs> Something happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, just, I mean, if yeah. you want to believe the creator's protecting anyone, he yeah. protected Earl Spence that day. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Because that, that was, uh, you know, he's one of the fighters that's actually sponsored by my company, Ana, as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, we sponsored Earl, like, early on, like, years ago. Okay. He's uh He's a special fighter, and yeah. he hasn't had the right dance partner to show his true greatness. You know, he's 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 had great fighters, you know, to to, to establish the fact, like yeah. Mikey Garcia, like yeah. man, he's something, he's something unique and special. But it's gonna take a fight like the Terrence Crawford fight, and that's exactly. if you're a boxing fan, that's the that's the obvious fight to make. Oh, you yeah. know, it's yeah. like Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua. That's the obvious heavyweight fight to make. Yeah. And the obvious fight at that weight class is Earl Spence and Terrence Crawford. It has to happen. Sooner than later. Sooner than later, right. You don't yeah. want it to be like Pacquiao and Floyd where it happens too late. Right. Yeah. What's happening here? Pound for pound rankings. Earl Spence Jr. passes Terrence Crawford. <gasps> what? Mm. Blasphemy. Wow. Blasphemy. Wow. That's some shenanigans. Who wrote that? Yeah, that's shenanigans. I don't agree with that. Wow. Number one, Canelo. Inua, number two. Mm. Mm. That's interesting, too. Yeah. I don't agree with that either. Yeah, no, that thing But is... they're great. <clears throat> Those yeah. are great fighters. Pound for pound is always weird, though, too, right? Yeah, it's, it's political. Yes. Yeah, it is political. 
there's nothing wrong with like thinking that Errol Spence is one of the greats right now. He is, but I think <clears> he needs a victory over someone like Terrence Crawford. He's been doing his thing, you know. Uh, he's been doing his thing, but uh, they just need to fight sooner than later. Yeah. You know what I mean? Let's let's put all of that lip wrestling yes. to sleep and get lip in Lip wrestling? Ring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the thing, though, with promoters, though? In boxing, it's very difficult to get champions to fight champions when they're represented by different promoters. Yeah. <clears throat> that becomes political as well, and, and hopefully uh, uh, those boxing promoters... I know I know top rank want to fight Terrence. I mean want to fight Spence. So it's just a matter of And who is that, Spence with? Uh Al Heyman. Okay. Yeah. Just yeah. a matter of them coming to the table and making it happen. Yeah, they just have to agree on terms. It's an exciting time for boxing though. You know, boxing comes in waves. Yeah. And right now it's an exciting time for boxing. There's a it lot is. of great matchups out there. Yeah, it is. I'm excited about Shakur Stevenson. Did you see him fight the other night? I didn't. No, oh, man. I didn't watch the fight. I mean, he to me he gonna be a Mayweather on steroids. Really? Yeah, I I really view him up on the the ladder like that. Well, yeah. I, it's one of the fights that I, I set aside that I have to make the time. I'm just too yeah. goddamn busy. Yeah, I sit down and watch it. I mean, it wasn't nowhere near close. It was kind of like a lot of flawed fights in the beginning stages where he just dominate every round. Wow. But you could still see that sweet art of what he was doing, and you're like, wow, okay. He's going to do the same thing, you know, on the other levels. It's an interesting time now because these fights are being held with no audience, mm-hmm. you know, or very limited audience. <clears throat> like uh, Anthony Joshua's fight, they they held it in London, and there was some audience members, but they were very spaced out. Yeah. And what do you think about that? Well, I think we have to adjust to, you know, the world and the reality of what's taking place right now. You know, in a perfect world... You know, I miss the sounds, yeah. you know, the yeah, that whole thing where the audience is concerned. That's that's missed dramatically, but hey, we have to adjust and do things by the rules. So I miss it, but I have to tell you, um, calling UFC fights live with no audience, yeah. there's two different I, I I view it as this way. It's almost like going to see an acoustic concert mm-hmm. versus like a big arena filled with people in a, a like a, a rock concert right like with electric guitars versus an acoustic guitar right. there's something about the intimacy of these shows where the fights are taking place with no audience you could hear the cornermen screaming out instructions mm-hmm. you could hear the grunts when dudes get hit yeah. you could hear the heavy breathing it's like first of all for me as a commentator to be there live mm-hmm. i feel so fortunate because I'm like, I'm one of 20 people that's in, in the room to watch this world championship fight. Mm. And there's something about it that's like, it makes it extra special. And yeah. Even watching the fights at home, I kind of like it. I yeah. like I like no audience. You yeah. hear more. No, that's true. Yeah. That's true. You got a point. I mean, I, I like it both ways. But if I had to choose, I, I want the people there. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Yeah, if I had to choose, I'd want the people there because I want more people to experience it. I don't want to be selfish. <laughs> yeah. But if I'm being selfish, <laughs> I kind of like no audience. <laughs> yeah. You no, just hear real. more. It's real. But there's something wild about some about crazy when crazy shit happens and the whole place gets on their feet and goes yeah. nuts. Yeah. And then when the fight is over, just the roar of the crowd. Yeah. There's something there's something wild about that. And it's something wild about a fighter that may be down and he 
energized by yes. the crowd and make a compact. Yes. You know. Yes. So, yeah. So is that like what your most satisfying business venture, like being involved in boxing? Yeah, it is. That's that's my first love, and uh, you know, I just I just think boxing is the most exciting sport in the world. You know, I, so I'm I'm in love with boxing, and I I uh, feel more joy in that space than a lot of the other businesses that I'm in. Well, it's a uh, it's such a pure sport. Yeah, you know the the highs are so high and the lows are so low. And, you know, especially when it comes to knockouts, the, the mm-hmm. finishes are so definitive. What, how, what is your take on this, uh, this whole Deontay Wilder shit? <laughs> uh, you know, man, I don't, I don't uh, understand what's going on, you know, with uh, Deontay. Uh, from what I'm hearing, you know, they may be trying to stop the Fury and Joshua fight from taking place. And, you know, my thing is, if he's not going to fight, get out the way. Yeah, let, let the movement continue because I don't like. I tell you what, I think he missed the opportunity. He should have fought Fury in December because I think he may have would have had an edge conditioning wise because Fury, you know, wasn't in that gym properly. Oh, he wasn't. No, I don't think he was in that gym properly around that time. So, so after the rematch, Fury slacked off. Well, I don't know how much he slacked off, but I do know, you know, he wasn't where he was supposed to be. He gets fat. He likes to yeah. get fat. He yeah. parties a little bit. Yeah. 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 It's just, it it, it bothers me because, uh, you know, I've talked to Deontay. I had Deontay in here, and I'm, I have a lot of respect for him, and I have a lot of admiration for him, and his power is legendary. His oh, power yeah. is crazy. Yeah. His power is like he's got magic. Yeah. You know? When he yeah. knocked out Ortiz, he hit him in the forehead and just shut his lights out. It's like, who the fuck does that? No, it's like, power. it's magic. Hmm. But when I saw him, first of all, you get rid of Breland. Mark Breland yeah. is, you know, Olympic gold medalist, yeah. former world champion, a, a, just not just a great fighter, but a great human being, a great coach. Yeah. And was looking out for his best interest when he stopped that fight. He knew what was happening. Yeah. He's like, this has to stop. And then the excuses. Yeah. The excuses bother me. Yeah, because when fighters start making weird excuses, that means that no one's around them to go, "Hey, man, stop, hmm. stop, stop, yeah. stop, stop!" What the fuck are you saying? Yeah, what the fuck are you saying? The, the, <laughs> your costume was the reason why you got knocked out. <laughs> yeah, and then it wasn't yeah. just the costume. Then it was like somebody might have poisoned him. Yeah, and then it was Tyson Fury has egg weights in his in his gloves. Wow, and then it was the gloves aren't on properly, so that. You know, the knuckles were at the bottom part of the glove and the top part was just flopping around. Wow. It doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense for a guy who's in boxing. Yeah. Because anybody who knows how Tyson Fury fights and understands boxing, Tyson does a lot of this shit. He does a lot of like, he's he's showing you this to set you up with that. Right. The hands are flopping around because he's being loose and he's giving you this. Right. And people are like, your hand doesn't bend back that way. Well, the fuck it doesn't. It does when you do that. It, it might not if you go like this. Yeah. It doesn't go all the way. But, but if you do that, yeah. that's exactly what happens. Yeah. And he's doing that with his hands. He's flicking his hands out there, showing them that, and then and then yeah. dropping the right hand on him. I was in training camp with Tyson Fury. I, I have a heavyweight by the name of Jared Anderson that sparred with Tyson Fury to help him get ready <clears throat> for that fight. And Tyson Fury was working hard 
and that jab and everything that's being complained about, he was doing the same thing in sparring. Wasn't nothing to it, you know what I mean? It's organic, and, you know, you just got to tilt his hat to the guy. He was a better guy that night, Yeah. and he worked hard. I, I witnessed him. He worked hard for that fight. And he was victorious. It's just sad when a great champion like Deontay Wilder, who literally knocked out every single yeah. opponent other than Tyson Fury and Stavern in the first fight. Yeah. I mean, he had an incredible record. Yeah. When you look at the guy's record, he has one single decision. Yeah. Every other fight he won by knockout. Who the fuck does that? <laughs> Who the fuck does that? Tyson couldn't accomplish that. He no accomplish. one accomplished that. Hmm. You can make a real argument that Deontay Wilder, up until that second Tyson Fury fight, yeah. was the greatest knockout artist of all time. Yeah. Especially in the heavyweight division. May not have, definitely didn't face the stiff competition that Mike Tyson did or yeah. that any of the other greats did. Larry Holmes did or right. many greats. But what he did was yeah. extraordinary. No. The, the kind of power that he exhibits is just like he like like mm -hmm. uh teddy atlas said it best it's like he's like thor he's like he's got that hammer yeah and like it doesn't he's like it's an eraser it erases all the mistakes you might have made in the earlier round <laughs> yeah. yeah it's from the jungle i don't know <laughs> <laughs> it's don't from know. it's from the center of the earth man that's yeah. like the earth's core inside yeah. his glove it's right. crazy his right. power is crazy yeah, it is. but sometimes and i'm sure you see this as a manager Sometimes when a person has extraordinary gifts, like the extraordinary gift of power, they don't develop the technical aspects of boxing yeah. the way a, a person who maybe has soft hands does. Yeah, that's true. And and even with speed, a lot of times, you know what I mean? If they get away, like Roy Jones, for yes. example, I think he got away years because of speed and his fundamentals yes. wasn't as sound as uh, you know they should have been. Well, you saw that in the Hopkins rematch, right? Because yeah. Bernard Hopkins was all about fundamentals, yeah. all about defense and discipline. Yeah. And Hopkins lost a close decision to Roy in the first fight, right. but then beat Roy in the second fight yeah. when he was actually older than Roy. But Roy's decline was more obvious because Roy's game was so dynamic. Yeah. He was all about leaping left hooks. And when Roy was in his prime, he was a force of nature. Oh, yeah. I mean, he really, really was. Roy was... In my opinion, the most impressive physical specimen inside a boxing ring I've ever seen. A lot of people don't know, but Roy was faster than Floyd. That's crazy. Yeah, a lot of people don't <laughs> believe that because he was light heavyweight. His speed was faster than Floyd's speed. I can believe it. Shit, I've witnessed it. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy speed, man. And once the speed, you know, all the times is, is undefeated undefeated you know what i mean so when he started arriving you know things change shit just kind of go downhill to a certain extent well i think it was that but i really think a big factor was the the beating john ruiz at heavyweight and yeah. then draining his body down yeah. to 175 to go back and fight tarver again yeah. to fight tarver and then fight tarver again it's just it was too much weight loss wow man you know now that's a whole nother story because I had a meeting with Roy Jones and Mike Tyson at my ranch for them to fight one another before that fight. Really? Yeah. How long ago? Oh, I, I got that in the book also, the oh, picture yeah? and everything, me, Roy, and Mike Tyson at the ranch. And uh, we actually left there in agreement to, to make that fight. And, uh, 
you know, right toward the end, I think me and Roy, we went and met with the Maloof brothers uh, at the Palms. There it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Roy decided, I think, I think, uh, uh, what's his name? Tarver was talking so much shit, man, until Roy was like, let me go, let me go take care of him one more time. And I was like, Roy, Ooh. man, let's, let's get that bird, you know, in the hand versus that one in the bush. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, he went to take care of Tarver, man. That's the only reason that fight didn't come to fruition. Tarver's no joke. Yeah. Tarver's real. When, when Tarver's standing in front of Roy at the rematch and he goes, yeah. you got any excuses tonight, Roy? <laughs> Like right before the fight before the fight starts, like <laughs> yeah. oh my god! Yeah, that kind of threw me off oh when I heard him say that. I said, "What that dude talking about in the ring, the Roy?" And then to win by knockout after that, wow, man, unbelievable! Yeah, Tarver's—he uh, doesn't get the respect that he deserves either. Tarver was a great, great, great boxer. Boy. Yeah, he Is he, I think he's still active as a heavyweight too, right? Like up until recently, yeah. I believe he had a fight within the last couple of years. Yeah, I think he uh, got uh, disciplined because of. Uh, uh, steroids or something, and yeah, and came. If you want to go to heavyweight, <laughs> yeah, you got to get involved with Mexican supplements. Yeah, good guy though. I like Tarver. Yeah, yeah, a talented fighter. Yeah, very talented fighter. Yeah, big horse. Yeah, it's funny how those things play, like line up. Like he could have been Mike Tyson versus Roy Jones Jr. when they're both in their prime. Right, that's true. I really liked the way Bernard Hopkins was able to. You saw the way you saw the way he done Tarver. I think that was yeah. That was amazing the way he just dissected. Hopkins shuts people yeah. down. He's when he beast. fought Felix Trinidad, I will never forget that because everybody thought that Felix Trinidad was this young up and coming lion, and I believe Bernard was about thirty six at the time, yeah. and people were writing him off. But Bernard Hopkins beat the brakes off of Felix Trinidad. Yeah, and I, I remember watching that fight. I'm like, my God. Yeah, he done the same thing with a guy I used to manage, uh, Winky Wright. Oh yeah, I remember yeah. that. I remember yeah. that. Winky yeah. Wright was a great defensive fighter too. Oh, yeah, Good he was jab. so clever. Yeah, so clever. Well, yeah. I mean, how about what he did with Kelly Pavlik? Oh yeah, that was another. Everybody was like, "Well, now for sure it's over." Right. You know, this is years past Felix Trinidad. Kelly Pavlik's a knockout artist. Yeah. You know, and everybody's like, "Well, this is going to be the one." Nah, maybe no. fighter. Yeah. Sweet signs. He had it down pat. Well, he was just so smart at being safe and roughing you up and knowing how to be, like, aggressive on the inside and clinching you and frustrating guys. Yeah. And just his fundamental. He was never out of position. Yeah. His fundamentals are so good. His defense is so good. Yeah. No, it's one of them special type of fighters for a long time. Long time. World <laughs> class. Deep into his late 40s. Yeah. World class. <laughs> From I mean, Mars. Crazy. I mean, well, that's why he had to change his nickname from the executioner to the alien. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> people are like, how the fuck are you doing this? Yeah. Push ups between rounds. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. No, he's extraordinary. I, yeah. I love his story, too, because when he went to jail and then got out, one of the guards said, I'll see you back in here. Mm -hmm. And he remembers that guy and yeah. remember using that as motivation. Like, yeah. the fuck you will. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> we got crazy, Jamie. Do we have a broom? Uh, we can get something. All right, we'll leave yeah. that alone for now. It's just a glass. Yeah. But it's um the whole sport of boxing is uh there's a lot of life in that. It's like what you put in 
is what you achieve. Like the yeah. re your results are dependent upon the way you process things and the way you approach things. Oh yeah, there's so much to that, and that's one of the things that I love so much about combat sports is that they're how much you put into that yeah. is, is what you get out of it. That's right. You know, it's it's just like the universal life, I mean, laws of life. You know, you reap what you sow. And if you decide to take a shortcut, it's going to show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to show. Now, as a person that is, you're, you're so much, you're so uh, invested in, in discipline and respect and honor, like, uh, it's kind of a perfect sport for you to be involved in in a lot of ways because it, it represents so many of those different aspects of human character. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I hadn't thought of it in that aspect, but you're right. You know, you're right. But I just, man, I'm, I'm just in love with the sport of boxing and it just been that way since I was a kid for some reason, like a magnet. I remember seeing Don King with the the hair and yeah. Muhammad Ali and man, I was mesmerized like, Wow, that looks special. I got interested in boxing when I was a little kid. My parents were hippies. Like, they weren't into boxing. Yeah. But when Muhammad Ali had a rematch with Leon Spanks, mm -hmm. after Muhammad Ali lost his title to Leon Spanks and then had a rematch, my parents made us all watch it. Because Muhammad Ali represented way more than yeah. boxing to yeah. the culture, to just to human beings at the time. Yeah. He represented this guy who stood up against the Vietnam War, right. who, who, who stood up for people in a way that he risked his career. Oh, yeah. Got shut down for three years in his prime. Yeah. After arguably like one of his most devastating performances, he fought Cleveland Big Cat Williams, lights him up like a Christmas tree, yeah. and then they make him take three years off. Mm. Just because he wouldn't fight in the Vietnam War. Yeah. Yeah, no, Ali actually put his life on the line. Yeah. You know, that's, that's why I call him the greatest of all time, because of the, the things he done outside of the ring and the things he stood for. Yeah, he was something other than just a world champion, other than just a boxer. Yeah. And I remember when my parents, I, I don't know how old I was at the time, I was probably like eight or nine years old, but when my parents maybe sat, sit down and watch that fight, I remember thinking, I can't believe my parents give a fuck about boxing. Like, what is this? And yeah. I think that was what got me really interested in boxing. Yeah. Yeah, it was bigger than boxing when Ali took that, that, yes. that, you know, that stage, man. He Special, special, special. I went to his funeral, and um, I never had experience like that with all the cultures and different things i was i was like stunned like wow you know people from all over the world was there speaking really yeah it was really interesting well i mean when he was alive he was the most famous human being on earth yeah you know i guess hearing about that was one thing but to actually be sitting there and witnessing you know all these different people from around the world you know what he meant to them i was like wow was a special guy he was a special guy and there's a lot of lessons to be learned both good and bad from his life as well yeah. you know particularly to about the end of his career right some of the saddest shit and and not just that but the the way he was taken advantage of yeah and you know that his need for money that yeah. he had not prepared properly and invested properly and just lived a little too loose and wild and then had to take those fights like with trevor burbick yeah those were sad fights yeah, definitely the one with uh, 
who was that he fought? Not for, uh, Larry Holmes. Larry Holmes. Oh, oh. man. I, I, I left that fight kind of upset with Holmes. Yeah, a lot of people were. <laughs> you know what I mean? I really think he went uh, that extra. He, he didn't have to, but he... Yeah. He went there. Well, he was his sparring partner. Yeah. He was Ali's sparring partner for a long time. And I think there was probably a bridge he had across to consider himself like the real champion. And I think it ruined his career. Yeah. Because I think Larry Holmes never really got the respect that he deserved because of that. Because people resented him yeah. for you know, for doing that and then also just living in the shadow mm. of Ali. Yeah, you can only imagine how many whoopings he took from Ali mm -hmm. coming up. Yeah. You know, that thing went deeper than what was in front of the TV. The problem is we didn't see that. All <laughs> exactly. we saw was this beloved champion who was this cultural <laughs> icon yeah. get the shit beat out of him by this young, yeah. up-and-coming champion. Yeah, just like with uh, Kobe and Jordan. I remember seeing Kobe, like, shit Jordan down in an all-star game, and I was like, man... Raise up, Kobe. Let the let Jordan shine his last game, you know. But Kobe wasn't trying to hear it. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. At least that's acceptable. Yeah. Because in basketball, it's, you know, it, it might have felt terrible for Jordan. Yeah. But it's not a beating. Right. That's the thing about boxing is you yeah. pay for it with your health. Yeah. And those consequences, the consequences of a, a big, like, Meldrick Taylor was never the same Whoa. after the Julio Cesar Chavez fight. Whoa. It was never the same. Boy, wasn't that a brutal fight, man? Brutal fight. Man. When Richard Steele stopped it, it was like two seconds to go Whoa, on the clock or something man. crazy. Whoa. But that's a great example that I always use of a fight where the fighter is never the same again. Yeah. You don't recover from some fights. Some yeah. fights take all of it out of you. Yeah. Leave it right there. Yeah. yeah. He was never the same after that. Never. And then I remember his fight with Terry Norris after that. Yeah. You could see that he was just not the same. Yeah. He wasn't the same guy. And Terry is not the same guy. He's not the same guy now, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he had a lot of rough fights, too. Julian Jackson. Yeah. You know? Man, you're a real student of boxing. Love man. boxing. <laughs> yeah. Love it. The man, hawk. Feel like I'm sitting there talking to an encyclopedia, man. Mm -hmm. You you know the game, man. Yeah. Well, yeah. Julian Jackson was one of those rare special punchers. Ooh, man. <sighs> special. Yeah. Special power. Yeah. You know? But then when Julian met Gerald McClellan, yeah. Gerald McClellan's like, I'll show you a special puncher. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, and look what happened with him. That's another one, right? Yeah. Well, that was one of, one of the things that I talked to Roy about, that that made Roy like really second-guess and, and think about his career because mm -hmm. when Gerald McClellan was coming up, he was thought to be the big rival for Roy Jones Jr. Yeah, Everybody thought that's going to be the big fight. When yeah. those two guys get together, that is going to be our version of in, in that weight class at that time mm -hmm. of what we want to see with Terrence Crawford and Earl Spence. Yeah, Same exactly. kind of thing. Yeah. Like two just destroyers right. like what happens what happens when you get these guys together i want to see right and then gerald fought nigel Benn. Mm. Ooh, what that a fight a that was one. yeah that was a tough one that was a i mean you could still watch it to this day and what a fucking war that was and yeah. the fact that nigel Benn made it out of that first round yeah unbelievable what heart unbelievable what heart yeah. I mean, Gerald McClellan was nuking everybody. Just nuked them. Just boom, boom. Yeah. yeah. And Nigel Benn threw the ropes and everything. 
hmm. where everyone's like, this fight's over. Yeah. Nope. Mm-mm. You kind of, you, you never had opportunity to see him come to fruition. And that remind me of Ikebuchi. Ikebuchi, mm, you know, yeah, yes. That's a, that's a heavyweight yeah. I would have really liked. Oh, to. my God. <laughs> He's a beast, right? When he beat David Tua, <laughs> yeah. everybody was like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Ike yeah. was terrifying. Yeah, he was. But he got in some serious trouble, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah, in Las Vegas. Well, there was talk of him coming back at 40 years old. He was going to get released from prison. Yeah, he got out. He did get out. Yeah, he got out. It just didn't didn't work. Yeah, it was too yeah. late. I went and visited him when he was uh, in jail uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, and, man, they brought him out in shackles. And the guards were like, you here to visit him, man? He'd been beating up all the, the cellmates, the inmates, the... You know the guards. Yeah, yeah. He was he was letting them have it in there. That is the last dude you want to talk <laughs> shit to in jail. Ikei Beabuchi. Yeah. God damn. He's a beast, man. Whoo! Like a big holy field. Yeah. Huge. But dangerous. Jacked. Yeah. What they call him? The president. That was his nickname, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My God, he was a tank. Man, special dude. And when he went to jail, everybody was you know boxing fans were like, oh no. He just, whatever he had, that rage inside the ring. Yeah. That rage uh, continued throughout life. Sir. Let your lawyer do, please. Here we go, brother. Thank you. Appreciate it. Cheers. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for being here, man. I really hey, appreciate man. it. Thanks I enjoy for having talking me, to you. man. I'm, uh, I'm enjoying every moment. What do you think about these guys that are decided to fight again? In their 50s, guys like Tyson and Roy Jones Jr., now Holyfield as well. You know, I enjoyed the last fight. You I know? did too. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's different, but, you know, I like it as long as uh, they don't jump in with these younger guys. Yes, that's you know exactly I mean? how I feel. That's yeah. exactly how I feel. I mean, I, I love the change. I, yeah. I, I enjoy both of them coming out of the ring like they went in. Yes. You know what yes. I mean? Of course, they got them a payday. So I like it. I, I, I really, I'm really looking forward to seeing Holyfield and Tyson yeah. fight. Holyfield has been working nonstop, yeah. nonstop. Yeah. Holyfield's a unique character, man. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. unbreakable. One of I my favorites. He might lose. Yeah. He might lose to people, but that's just because of the limitations of the human body, not because of his mind. Yeah. Like his mind is unbreakable. That guy has confidence in himself that never ends. Oh, man. And character. Just, uh, just yeah. the, the, the ability to drive forward and yeah. to conquer. Those fights with Riddick Bowe, my God. My <laughs> oh, God. Man. Crazy wars great. with yeah. Riddick Bowe. Yeah. War. People forget about those wars. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. When I was a kid, when I was watching those fights, like you'd be like, this is madness. Yeah. These guys were going to war. I couldn't believe he, his chin. Holyfield Incredible. got a chin like none other. Like nobody. Incredible. I mean, and it been that way. That shows you how good James Tony is, because James yeah. Tony stopped him. Yeah, and I watched that fight wow. recently. Yeah, and James Tony's a middleweight. Mm-hmm. How about that? <laughs> James Tony at his best. Yeah, you know, he's a technical beast. Oh though. my god. Yeah, and one of the greatest shit talkers of all time. <laughs> he would talk so much shit, just yeah. in sparring, yeah. in fights, yeah. everything. Yeah, at the ring. Yes. <laughs> No, James yeah. Tony's a he's That's amazing. Homie. That's the home. I ran into James Tony a couple of years ago. Yeah. 
at a like some this was uh there was a bar in Woodland Hills. Yeah. And I was uh I was with some friends. I went to meet them. Sat down. I was with my wife and a couple of her friends as well. We we're having a drink and this dude walks in with a suit and they're like, "Who is that?" Yeah. I'm like, "Who is that?" Yeah. Who the fuck is that? I I got up out of the chair. I go, "That's James fucking Tony." Yeah. And I went over and gave him a hug and said hi yeah. to him. Yeah. He had fought in the UFC a few years earlier. Oh yeah, he I fought uh, Randy Couture. Yeah, it didn't last long. <sighs> he just took a payday. <laughs> I don't think he was really training for it. Yeah, he lived in my neighborhood at the time. Oh, okay, so I ran into him at the gas station afterwards. Right, like a couple weeks after the fight. I was like, "What's up, What's up James? How you doing?" He's like, "I'm good. I'm yeah. good." No, those guys. Yeah. Uh, the the boxers are kind of out of line when they decide to. Going there dealing with that UFC business. It takes a long time to learn, but I think if they approach it correctly, mm-hmm. if they're young while they while they get involved and they approach it correctly. See, I think one of the more interesting entrants into mixed martial arts is Claressa Shields. Oh yeah. Because Claressa is a beast of an athlete. Right. I mean an incredible athlete and young. Yeah. She's young. She can still learn all this stuff. Olympic gold medalist, world champion boxer, tremendous yeah. hand speed, technical boxing skills mm-hmm. off the charts. Then she goes and trains with John Jones. Yeah. John Jones, who's the greatest of all time. Yeah. So she's training with the greatest of all time, and she's learning the wrestling, the takedown defense, yeah. and she's going to have such an advantage with her hands. It's and every fight starts standing see. up. She's going to learn. Yeah. And she's doing the right moves, in my opinion. She signed with the PFL, which is a smaller organization. Uh-huh. And she'll rack up some wins over there, yeah. hopefully, and then make her way eventually to the UFC. And I think that'd be very interesting. Yeah, I spoke with her, and she you know, was voicing to me her frustration where boxing was concerned. And that yeah. she was really thinking about going over there. So I guess she, she decided. Yeah, I to- talked to her uh, a, a few years ago on uh, Instagram, and I said, are you interested in, are you going to fight MMA? Because I know you're interested in this, because I know she did some sparring with Cyborg. Mm-hmm. She said she's thinking about it. And we had talked about doing a podcast before I left LA, yeah. but um, I'm a big fan of hers. But I don't think there's any competition for her in boxing. Mm-hmm. I think she's stuck at that. Look at all those belts. Pa-pow. When it comes to boxing, there's, I mean, who is she going to fight? There's only been a few standout, women boxers and the big problem has always been competition like ann wolf for example ann wolf to this day who has like in my opinion the greatest one punch knockout in the history of women's boxing whoa and ann wolf could crack yeah she could and amazing trainer when she was training james kirkland and she's having him do all kinds of crazy shit like she was she cracked that whip and james kirkland was at his best when he was under the tutelage of ann wolf yeah right here in austin And yeah. Wolf was a monster. Yeah. Show that one punch knockout because it is crazy. And it's right before that. Watch this power. Seriously. Who's got this kind of power? Right here. Boom. Ooh, wow. I mean, come like on. Some. And mm. just everything. Whoa. Technical, had incredible work ethic. I mean, wow. and Wolf was a monster. But yeah. who was there for her? Who was there? Layla yeah. Ali, but that yeah, never happened. Never happened. Yeah. yeah. Layla Ali is another one. Yeah. Muhammad Ali's daughter yeah. rose to fame. He made some money, but what's the competition? Who's there for her? You know? Mm. Mm. It's hard. 
Lucia Riker never got her oh, due. Riker, yeah. Lucia Riker was a beast. Yeah, Riker. A beast. Yeah, she was and she was trip. an elite kickboxer, too. Yeah, right. She was from Holland. I remember you know, which is, uh, Holland is the, the birthplace of, uh, you know, Muay Thai came from Thailand, but Holland, they took Muay Thai and turned it into this style of kickboxing, Dutch kickboxing. Right. And Lucia Riker was a beast of a kickboxer. Couldn't really get the fights she wanted there and decided to go into boxing. Always chased down Christy Martin, but right. never got that fight. Hmm. You know, Christy Martin was on a lot yeah. of undercards, and she got kind of famous. Coal Miner's daughter. Coal miner daughter yeah. But again, it's like they don't get the fights that they yeah. want, you know? Yeah, that's true. It's a hard world. Yeah, oh, but it's fair. But MMA is the only place right now where women can shine for whatever reason, where hmm. they have like legitimate elite status where they get a lot of press, mm -hmm. they get a lot of, uh, they, they get the accolades, they get the respect, they get the money. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's true. Do you follow MMA at all? Uh, not totally. I watch here and there, but yeah. I, I just love that guy that wrestled the bears. and Oh, Khabib? Yeah. Khabib Nurmagomedov is a monster. He's a monster. Yeah. yeah. He, he really is a monster. He's huh? a monster. Yeah. yeah. He's so disciplined. So mm. disciplined. Yeah. Mm. he's a, There's a guy very religious. No drinking, no smoking, oh, okay. no fucking around, no nothing. Devout Muslim. Just just discipline. Wow. Just full discipline and a champion's mentality and wow. undefeated. Undefeated in the most talent-filled weight class in the world at 155 pounds. No one's wow. undefeated at 155. And this guy, he's not un just undefeated. He might have lost two rounds in his whole career. Yeah. Might. Might have. Maybe just one. Wow. Everybody it, else just gets smashed. You know, it's amazing where you see greatness. You know, it's never without that discipline and that individual that's making that commitment to, you know, become great. Yeah. It's never missing. No, it's never missing. It's never missing. You get flashes of of spectacular talent without discipline. You know, there's there's always been a few guys that were like very talented and you'd see him you're like, "Wow, this guy's dangerous, he's very talented." Yeah. But without discipline, you never develop that sort of legacy. Yeah. That a true champion like Khabib has. It all, in, always comes with discipline. And in real life too, yes. to a certain extent, you know, you just yeah. don't it don't happen. A lot of people call it luck. Nope. <laughs> yeah, they like to call it luck when they don't have the discipline and the time. They, they they don't do it. They like to call it luck. Right. But when someone's consistent over long periods of time, yeah, pay attention. Yeah, pay attention. There's some fucking discipline involved there. Oh yeah, because otherwise they're not going to make it. Yeah, they, they, there has to be. There has to be that work ethic. You're right. It does There's no real long term success exists without it. You can have these little flashes. Yeah, you know. Yeah. The problem with those flashes is. <laughs> You're you are you given a gift. Yeah. And you don't give that gift the respect and the justice that it deserves. Yeah, that's that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Versus the movement. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. The moment versus the movement. Yeah. Yeah. And some people never learn that. When you wrote this book, was this a book not just to sort of relay the lessons that you've learned in your life, but to lay them out? For, for young people and for people that need this information? Yeah, I, I think a combination of both. You know, it was, I, I come from a, I guess it came from an energy and a situation of me, first of all, what happened where I was concerned. Uh, you know, my wins, my losses, everything happened in between. And 
I think uh, it just like covered ground in areas that I, you know, wasn't really thinking it would cover. But you know, just being real, you know, it's it's something about uh, being real. I, I I figured that out where my kids was concerned. You know, when I uh, would speak with them and not try to, you know, uh, sugarcoat different things, but just uh, the the butt naked authentic authentic truth. You know, I noticed they embraced the truth just a little better than trying to sugarcoat things. So in my book, I just raw and uncut. You know, this is how it was. So I'm going to just tell it like it is. Was this a calling for you? Did you have like this feeling in your head that you needed to do this and write this all down? Yeah, I definitely feel like uh, it definitely was a calling because I was a guy that I enjoyed being a quiet storm in the music industry. I, I never... If anybody that followed my, uh, you know, my track record and thing from the past, I was low key. And it came a point where I call it the spirit kind of moved on me to, uh, you know, matter of fact, it's living out my purpose. You know what I mean? It's one thing to uh, engage with your talent and show everybody your talent. And then I think as human beings, as we evolve, then there's a time for purpose. And in my purpose, I want to inspire, uplift, you know, kind of help my fellow man to a certain extent. So all of that was the movement that caused me to want to share, you know, my story. So was it all the lessons that you learned in your life, they're just sitting in your mind and you're saying, like, I have to share these. These are these are valuable for other people and it will help other people. Yeah, most definitely. I, I knew <laughs> when I had to go back and, like, really think of the things that I had came through. Uh, I didn't really do that before I wrote the book. I just went to like uh, recording my stories on on paper and I'm like, wow, you know, I, I came from a lot of shit. I went through a lot of, you know, trials, tribulations and different things like that that I know people go through, you know, because as I would travel around the world, everybody asked me, how you done this, what, when, where, how you was able to accomplish these things. So it was like a build-up was taking place over the years that, okay, I need to share, you know, my glory because everybody want my story. No, everybody want my glory, <laughs> but <laughs> everybody don't want my story. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that's so valuable about a book like this is for young people, they get to read all the things you went through and it gives them it gives them a structure. It gives them an idea of what's possible for themselves. When they see someone they admire, yeah. and someone that's become extremely successful, and they read how it all went down, yeah. and then they apply that in their own life, they think about their own life, it's very valuable. Yeah. Like a book like this can be fuel to a young person that's that's thinking about how do I become successful? How do I become someone that I like the people that I admire? Well, you read a book by the people that you admire, and you, you try to figure out what they did. Yeah. And, and you read what they were thinking, what it was like for them, and yeah. you absorb that and take it in yourself. Yeah, no, absolutely, that's absolutely true. Um, it's it's kind of hard to get a lot of people to read, and I was one of those people. And that's why, you know, on my journey now, you know, I really try to express and explain to them that readers are leaders. You know, if you want to become a leader, it's important to read because it was reading that 
really caused my career to go to a whole nother level when really? I started reading, you know, because I was kind of uh, where I come from. Reading wasn't wasn't popular. It was like a boring thing to do, but it's a lot of power in reading. And, uh, you know, I wanted to be an example to uh, people like myself, you know, that didn't believe in reading or, or just if you're interested in how to turn nothing into something, if you're interested in the structure and the different rules of how to do things, then pick up a book. Get the art and science of respect. What were the books that inspired and, and educated you when you first started reading them? Uh, the biggest one that was life-changing to me was Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon oh. Hill. Yeah. 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 That very one, interesting book. Yeah, very. And, and what it done for me... That particular book, I had a lot of gifts and a lot of powers that I was unaware of. And I also wasn't aware of the importance of structure, you know, organizing and, and goals, writing the goals down and different things like that. So when I read that book, you know, it, it was, I tell everybody it was like a lot of uh, biblical readers are familiar with, with Moses when he went up to get the Ten Commandments. And he came back with his eyes on fire and like, you know what I mean? He had saw something special. When I read that book, that's what happened to me. A lot of, uh, you know, my brain cells that was closed was open because, you know, I understood that I didn't really necessarily need a degree. You know, I was in bondage for a long time thinking because I didn't have a degree, I couldn't accomplish and become certain things. Mm. That left immediately. You know what I mean? And that's the importance of people, you know, being able to identify with people that, you know, came from a place that they came from. You know what I mean? I didn't yeah. have that, but I figured out how to do it. So you could figure out, out how to do it the same way, you know, I did without, you know, of course, we uh, definitely push people toward, you know, education because, you know, I understand real clearly a lack of education and bad habits is what, you know, can cause you to stay in bondage. It's beautiful, though, that you, you promote. That's self-education. It yeah. is education. Yeah. I mean, education doesn't just have to be at a school where you have to pay and go to. Right. You can get a tremendous education from books. Yeah, that's true. Were you, did someone refer that book to you? Did you, did someone try to get you to read these books, or did you just find them on your own? You know, that particular book, every night, you know, in my life since I've been like nine years old, you know, I, I've been a praying man. And I always pray for wisdom, knowledge, and education. And when that book, you know, came in my hand, I felt like it was answer prayer. You know what I mean? So when I started reading the book, I couldn't put it down. You know what I mean? And it caused me to, uh, I think I stayed in my room for like two days. And when I came out, I, I like re constructed my whole company at Rap-A-Lot. You know, I went and, like, ended up buying out my partner. You know, I had a meeting with him, and I, and I told him, I said, I want to run my company now, you know what I mean, because I had been using him for years as the guy up front. He had the degree, and, you know, I felt like, you know, uh, he was more qualified to do these things than I was. So I stayed in the background, worked in the studio with the artists, and just made sure product was you know being done but after reading that and educating myself that you are 
fully qualified, more than qualified to do this. I had a meeting with him and tried to uh, convince him to take a back seat and let me run the situation, which led to me having to buy him out because he didn't feel I was qualified. So against all odds, I, I bought him out. And the banker, the distributor, everybody was trying to discourage me, and everybody was saying I'm going to be out of business in six months if I do that. So I wasn't trying to hear any of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I yeah. fired like 25 people and kept like three. <laughs> and within them six months, I had set up a, a record in rap a lot that had never been set before financially. That's beautiful. Yeah. A real That's story. Beautiful. That's a beautiful story. Yeah. Did you uh, get inspired by any other books after that? Man, I get inspired by... Uh, I'm like on a reading journey right now. The Master Key, you know, I love that book. I don't know if you read The Master no, Key. It's a, it's another great one. That's another one that uh, really taught me about the universal laws of life. You know what I mean? It was important for me to learn about the universal laws because there was a time in my life I was working against the universal laws. Mm. And to understand how the universal laws operate you know, has caused me to uh, be able to live a much smoother, fruitful life, you know, without going against them. Like what specifically about the universal laws? Okay, other words, like if you have an understanding, let's just say on the law of gravity, if you really understand the law of gravity and you understand that if I get on top of this building and jump down that I'm not going to float, then you know you don't <laughs> you don't have to float right right and if you understand the law of attraction mm-hmm. if you understand the power of your mind that you can dream of these things and execute a work ethic and different things behind the law of attraction and you focus on that then you can bring that to fruition so you know those are powerful laws that meant a difference to me and when you you do you have a book list of like these these books that have inspired you that you recommend to other people? Mm-hmm. Do you have that listed anywhere where anybody can access that? Yeah. Is it online or something? Well, I may have a few. You of got them. it in your phone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean for for people listening to this conversation right now right. that want to be as successful as you, there's probably like a lot of people like, "Come on, Jay. Tell me what want, you got." They want to know about the books, right? Yeah. Oh my god, man. I mean, that's there's uh there's so much in learning what the people that you admire were inspired by because I'm sure you're inspiring people with your work and the people that are inspired by you are like, well, what inspired him? How did he, how did he get all this juice? How did he get all this motivation? How did he get all this information? Yeah, no, that's true. Well, we definitely can't leave out the word of God. You know what I mean? Um, Have you, you've always been a very religious person. I don't know if I would call it very religious, but I've always been a believer. And uh, the Bible, for example, you know, Proverbs is one of my favorite uh, chapters. You know, I've been able to use Proverbs, which was written by King Solomon, the smartest man in the world. That has, you know, when I use those principles, I was able to compete with all the degrees in the world. You know what I mean? From a business perspective, from a personal, you know, like a roadmap in my personal life, just proverbs, you know. So it's different things like that that I was 
able to execute that, uh, you know, made a major difference. You got a list on your phone there? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Here's a few. Uh, of course, Think and Grow Rich, Compound Effect, The Art and Science of Respect, The Passion Test, The Master Key System. Okay. So all these books are essentially about success. Yeah. 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 I don't, like, I don't really uh, read a lot of fiction. I don't have time to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, get it. I'm trying to, like, be better. Yeah. So I'm always, like, uh, chasing that, that book that would add to, you know, what I already have. One of the things that I read about you that was crazy was that there was a time where the feds had tried to take you out. Mm-hmm. Well, you were... True story. Yeah. Yeah. You were formulating a company with... Uh, it was Suge Knight and... Uh, was it Irv? Irv Gotti. Irv Gotti. Yeah. And you and Suge Knight were formulating your own distribution company. Right. And what happened? Well, my journey with them trying to take me out happened way before then. Really? But, oh, yeah. When yeah. did it start? I would say it started back in the early 90s. You know, I was, I remember, and here's what happened. Uh, here's what I believe with all of my heart. You know, I'm a guy that made a transition from the streets to corporate America in my early 20s. And um, I really believe that they saw greatness taking place with me. And I say that because, you know, as I started making my transition and start prospering, I started driving nicer cars. You know what I mean? I started, like, uh, empowering ex-convicts. And different things. I built rap a lot. We became the number one independent label for years, you know, with ex-convicts, you know, and it's something I put together, you know, and it was a, I use a formula, you know, I told these guys, okay, you got to get that world up, and I want it completely given up if you're coming over here to deal with me, because I understood that if you give up 99% and hold on to one, they'll take that one and destroy the 99. So, with that understanding, we was able to build a number one record label for years, but it caused problems because they felt like I was uh, money laundering. It mm. felt like a lot of things was taking place where my success was concerned, and it a lot of animosity built up, which ultimately led to DEA coming involved and them trying to like take my very life. But... As, and we can talk about that part, but you asked me about the Suge and Irv Gotti situation. What we had done is had a meeting in uh, in L.A., and we were considering starting a, a black-owned distribution because we felt like it was a need for artists to come after us, and we was trying to uh, make a better way and a smoother way for them because even back then I saw where change was trying to take place in the industry and they wasn't going to allow, I call it a conspiracy. I saw the conspiracy taking place where they wasn't going to allow any more masterpiece, cash money, uh, uh, Irv Gotti. Independent. Yeah, people. independence. They was like shutting that door. Yeah. So, you know, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I see the move they making. Let me counter this and create another avenue for the youth to come in after us. And unfortunately, uh, I think uh, 
they witnessed the same thing and they hit Murder Inc., which is Herb Gotti Company, destroyed it. They hit Suge Knight, Death Row. We know what happened with that. And they came at me in a massive way, you know, all the way up to the point where they put a man on me that killed eight people. And I really believe, you know, he was trying to kill me. And when you say they put a man on you, like, in what way? They assigned a guy by the name of Schumacher, you know, on me to arrest me, to whatever he was supposed to do. But he sent death threats at me. And here's a man that killed eight people. You know, I hired an investigator. Since they was investigating me, I decided to hire an investigator to investigate them. And that's when I found out this guy killed all of those people. You know, I brought the investigating report so you can look at it if you choose Yeah, to. you showed me outside. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, this was a real-life situation that people may hear and think, you know, this is not true. But here's confirmation of how true it was. In 1999, you know, I reported this with the help of Congresswoman Maxine Waters, Janet Reno, because— they intervened on my behalf because they saw what was happening. And, of course, we they had a, a what you call that, a, a congressional hearing on me. All of this is public information. A congressional hearing where the DEA and, you know, it, it reminded me of the time when Clarence Thomas was uh, <laughs> being, uh, a hearing was taking place over his harassment or something. Yeah. And all of those people, Democrat and Republicans, was around, you know what I mean, had mm -hmm. him in a circle. So this is the conversation they was having concerning me, James Prince. And I'm watching this, you know, on, uh, on, on video. I'm not invited, but I'm watching them have this conversation about me, about the congressional hearing. And uh, I'm just like, wow, you know, these people want me pretty bad. But a long story short, you know, they were able to speak up on my behalf and, you know, which ultimately, oh, there's so many connections to this because even Al Gore, you know, came in a portrait where they tried to set me up at my church with Al Gore. Al Gore came to visit my church, you know, which when you're running for president, you visit a lot of black churches and stuff like that. And my pastor wanted me to meet Al Gore that day. So when I pull up, you know, I was married at the time, you know, I told my wife, I say, all these people ain't here with the president because I was watching body language. You know, I saw black glasses kind of looking my direction. And she said, oh, come on, boy, you being leery. You know, them people not thinking about you or whatever. So I went and heard the sermon, and before the sermon was over, I say, let's go. Normally I hang around and socialize, and of course, pastor wanted me to meet Al Gore. I decided to leave. And shortly after, the Dallas newspaper came out with a, a story, and all of this you can confirm and look it up. James Prince donated a quarter million dollars to Al Gore at the church to stop an investigation on him. Oh, man, just a bunch of BS. Unbelievable. You know what I mean? So, so I was the, being set up. the news. Oh, yeah. It's documented. So they created this fake story. 
to make you look bad. Mm-hmm. And they printed it in the news. So it had to yeah. be coordinated at the very top. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. What was that like? To know they were conspiring against you like that. You know. First it, of all, you had to feel like, oh, shit. I'm, yeah. I must have fucking made it. Well, <laughs> I didn't quite feel that I had made it. I felt like they wanted to hit me. Yeah. You know, because, like, these, this guy, one night I left my office. And a DPS officer stopped me. He got behind me on the streets when I left out of the office, but he stopped me on the freeway. And it was the first time I was stopped one time to be told to go and stop again. So he stopped me on the freeway and told me to go and pull in the McDonald's parking lot. So I said, oh, okay. So as I exit the freeway and looked over in the McDonald's parking lot, it was dark, and I saw a a cherry key jeep green and a cutlass and it was dark so i'm like nah i'm not pulling in that dark so i kind of told him i'm gonna pull in the shell station where the lights were so um, and i could hear him in the back pull fucking over on his on his thing make a right i'm like nah, i'm gonna go over here so i went over there in the light i had some guys behind me following me because they had been sending me threats, so I'm not stupid, so I understood that, you know, I need to cover myself until I make it home. And uh, when I pulled over, you know, the officer got out, and he said, why you didn't pull over like I told you? I say, sir, I didn't want you to think I was trying to hurt you in that dark, and I didn't want to think you was trying to hurt me. What's the problem? Ah, uh, where, where you were swerving. I say, no. I say, you got the wrong man. I don't drink. I don't smoke. Wasn't no swerving going on with me. Well, uh, where are your guns? <laughs> right? How do he even know I have guns? I gave him my gun license. I say, well, how you know I have guns? I haven't even given you my license. So I, I gave him my license. I say, my hand's on the steering wheel. My guns are under my seat. Well, well, get out the car. Get out. I said, okay, I don't have a problem with that. How much money you have? I say, you want to borrow some money or something? Why you <laughs> ask me about my money? <laughs> so he told me to go in the back of the car. So I went back there, and um, he went and searching my car. You know, he in there. I see him, like, moving around with things, but he went on the passenger side. So I walk around. I say, man, why are you violating my right searching my car? And he jumped. Get back. I'm looking for the gun. I said, I told you where the guns are. Clearly you then passed them up. You got my clips out. So anyway, he came back, and I could see him making eye contact with the car, with the people across the street. Mm. And eventually one of them drove over. And this was an officer by the name of Chad Scott. He had, like, black paint under his eyes and an army fatigue type of uh, uniform. And him and also, you know, translated some words. And he came back to me and said, okay, you're free to go and gave me a warning ticket, you know, a warning ticket. And it was then when I got home, I realized a bullet or two was missing. So red flags like, oh shit, yeah, like went up. I'm like, damn, why would they keep one of my bullets? Why were they trying to pull me in the dark? This was before I knew 
you know, Schumacher had killed eight people. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I went home and that really caused me to, uh, you know, want to protect myself and want to document why I wanted to protect myself. So bizarre that they would take bullets, too, because without the rifling from your particular gun, like all it's establishing is the same round you use. Right. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I didn't understand. It's weird. You know, I just counted them, and I'm like, When you said that they were threatening you, like death threats, like what kind of death, how were you receiving these? What they were doing, and it's in the investigative report, people that worked for me, you know, I had a street team that would promote my records in different clubs at night. What they had done was jumped on a couple guys. They pulled them over. They took them down to the station, stripped them naked, you know, jumped on them, took their jewelry, you know, all kinds of stuff, and sent messages. Let him know, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. Which eventually, when I made my report, they end up finding the jewelry and different things that I reported that, you know, I told them, these guys, you got rogue cops. I said, y'all put a hit man on me. You got two rogue cops that's doing this and doing that, and I'm in fear of my life. You know, I just wanted to be known because if a situation take place and I come out on top, then I don't want nobody to be mad at me. <laughs> Right, because mm. I'm gonna protect myself. Yeah, yeah. How long did this period of turmoil last? Because it seemed like that would be incredibly stressful. Well, it went on for years. Years, you know. Yeah, even before the end, they stopped me one night and they they planted a, a pill on me called ecstasy. You know, and How, where'd they put it? They put it. Here's what happened. I was in the back seat. First of all, the police stopped me, and this was an officer I had a run-in with with a pistol case, and I beat the pistol case. So he stopped me on uh, Richmond one night, and he was like, well, how did you beat that case? And he knew it was me because I had rap light on my license plate. How did you beat I said, man, I don't really want to talk about that. I said, I'm trying to go to a party. You know, why are you stopping me? So it made me get out, put me in the back of the police car. Kept me there, you know, talking to people for, you know, quite a, t a long time. And he decided to take me off the main street to a side street. And it was then where he took me out of one car and took me to another car with two more younger rookie officers. And shortly after, he came out with a pill in the back of the first car. Look what we have here. And I'm like. You know, when I seen that taking place, I said to the two officers, I say, man, I say, I've been in here. Y'all know. He's, nah, you're not trying to do that. That's not. Look what we have here. Look what we have here. And before I know it, I was headed to the police station, and they charged me with a pill called ecstasy. And I immediately got out of jail, took a test, a drug test, took a lie detector test just to prove you know, I had nothing to do with any of that. So they tried to get me to cop out for probation and cop out. And I'm like, no. So the pill changed from ecstasy to transact, whatever that pill is. And it changed again. It was constantly changing as they test the pill. And they were basically trying to get me to cop out for something. And I wouldn't. And eventually the case was dismissed. So... How many years did all this go on for? You said it went on for years. How many years? 
I would say 10 years. 10 fucking yeah, years. Yeah, 10 years or better, I was a target. How did you stay calm during that time? Because that's got to be incredibly stressful. Yeah, it was, you know, because, like, in the hood where I'm from, you have to uh, survive the guys that's in the hood because they're trying to get you. You know, wherever success is concerned, they're trying to get you. And... The police that's supposed to be protecting me, the ones I'm paying all these taxes to, had became an a, a enemy where they was trying to get me. So it, it was very stressful, but after so long, I became immune to it. It's almost like, you know, I had a made-up mind because I was on a journey to break the poverty curse where my family was concerned. Mm. That was my whole drive. I'm like... I got to get my mother this house that she always wanted. You know, I, I come from the projects. So I was dealing with a power that was greater than the powers from the streets and from the police. And I was like, you know, no weapon form against me going to prosper. Mm. So, you know, I had that mentality. I wrapped it around spirituality. And, you know, I, I said, if God be for me, the world could be against me. And, you know, it just became like a, a lifestyle dealing with them people. So you just developed an immunity. Yeah, I like, had to. Like being around sick people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the DEA was trying to pin a case on you about they figured there must be some money laundering going on because cause you're from the hood, because you're incredibly successful. Rap a lot records is killing it. Yeah. Like there's got to be something else going on. They, they right. probably can't help themselves. They didn't think that you had the kind of discipline that you had. Yeah. And they probably felt you kept one foot in the streets. You yeah. kept one foot in, in either the drug game yeah. or some 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 kind of crime they can catch you on. So here's what they ultimately done though, and you know, uh, of course, you know, I had ex-convicts and different things working for me. So what they actually actually done was they got a female that was uh, spending money with one of my groups, no, with two or three of my groups, bringing them to New Orleans and different things to do different concerts. And this particular female ended up dating one of my guys that was working for me. And she was a fed. She was a, she was a snitch. <sighs> and she was trying to work out an awful situation. So she's spending money with him. She's giving sex to him. And which ultimately led to her setting up a situation where she told him, oh, I have these two college guys that's coming in town and they have a hundred and some thousand dollars. Now, all you have to do, I'm going to take them to Papa those. And all you have to do is get the key off of the tire of my vehicle and go to the room and get the bag and go free. It's a hundred and some thousand dollars in it. So my guy that worked for me bid on that, but he bid on it in a manner where he sent someone else because he wasn't really hip to conspiracy, right? Mm. So he sent somebody else, a guy that's like a nobody, you know, he sent him to go get it. But in the process of him sending, he was with me. This was a guy that was with me. It's almost like an angel sent me to pick him up and take him to a restaurant. And, you know, when I read the transcripts, they having a conversation and he couldn't 
talk to her because he was around me. And he told her that, you know, I'm around, I'm around the homie. You know, I can't talk right now. Well, why are you with him? This is what she's saying. You know, we're supposed to be handling this business. So that conversation is one of the reasons why they couldn't get me. He couldn't uh, even have a conversation around me. Other than that, they would have made it appear like I was involved. So clearly you weren't involved. No, real clearly because of those words. Ah. You know, so but they was able to penetrate the system by, you know, getting him and another guy because they bit on that situation. And when they got that bag, it was drugs in that bag. You know, they put kilos in that bag, even though she told them it was going to be money. The feds have a way of doing what they want to do. And they was able to stick, you know. It so they basically guys. take kilos from like when they bust someone for drugs. They take that shit and then they use it as evidence, and then they use it to set somebody up. Yeah, yeah. It should uh, be illegal the way yeah they done that. You know what I mean? For sure, it's entrapment. Yeah, it's entrapment. And what happened was the same guy that participated in that, Chad Scott. If you look up what happened to him a year or two ago. He got arrested for doing these very same things, you know. A so year he's been long. doing it for a long fucking time. Yeah. If he just got caught. Think about the lives that he destroyed. You know, think about the people that is doing years, you know, almost life sentences because of what he's been doing. Well, it's the darkest part of our criminal justice system. It's one, one of the things that I've talked to Josh Dubin about and, and Jason Flom when he was on here. This nonviolent drug offenses yeah this this long history of putting people in jail for nonviolent drug offenses and th th these people are still in jail there's people in colorado right now oh, yeah. that are in jail for marijuana possession and they can look out their prison window and see legal marijuana grow operations mm. while they're in jail for marijuana possession and marijuana sales mm. it's crazy no, it's crazy, you know, and, it, and it's, it's a racist system, and, you know, I hope someday, like, real soon it change. You know what I mean? They're using people like human batteries to generate income because these prisons are all pr for profit. Yeah. They're private prisons for profit. There's an extraordinary amount of them. Yeah. And they, they're incentivized to get more people in jail. Mm -hmm. So they use lobbyists to make sure that drug laws stay the same or are even stricter. Yeah. They keep those prisons filled and they generate income from those prisons. They use human beings. Oh yeah. They get caught up in that trap literally as batteries. They're yeah. like batteries to make money. Or legal slavery. Legal slavery. Yeah. Yes. And exactly. We, and we think it's over. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, it's the darkest shit of all time. It's like there's no concern whatsoever for where these people came from, yeah. the situations that they faced, the obstacles that they overcame, and then the fact that they get set up. Yeah. That some of them are getting set up like this, and they're getting set up by people that are being paid in tax dollars. Yeah. It's insanity. Yeah. It's insanity. And in the future, history, when they look back at us today, these times and these things. Yeah. Whatever is honestly discussed and told, it'll be a shame. It'll yeah. be shameful. People yeah. people will be embarrassed by who we are today. Yeah, no. No, I agree. You know, and I, I gave the analogy, like, 
with my guys. It was almost like, can you imagine like rehabilitating drug users uh, that's going to a, a class where where they are a rehabilitating class and the very officers that we pay our tax to are uh, circling around that class where they are to try to give them cocaine to to like get them to relapse. That's what was happening. Yeah, yeah. that's what was happening because. Yeah. One of the things that I describe all the time when it comes to the police is that you have to recognize that cops are playing a game. And when you're playing a game, the game is arrest a person, make the charge stick. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a game because it's it's there's laws and there's perpetrators and there's you know violent offenders. There's all these different things that they like to call people and different scenarios. But at the end of the day, if you're an officer, you, you have a mandate. Your mandate is to arrest people yeah. and to make charges stick. So it becomes like a game. Yeah. That's why prosecuting attorneys, they hide evidence that they yeah. know will exonerate the person. Yeah. They lie to defense attorneys. They withhold information. They do this on purpose because they yeah. want to win that game. Because yeah. if you can win that game and get more convictions, their career will escalate. So we've mm-hmm. set it up yeah. in this way where you're yeah. incentivizing people to cheat, yeah. to yeah. steal, to, to become a, a, a criminal yeah. in support of law enforcement. Man, I, 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 you couldn't have said it better. You know what I mean? That's the reward. That's your reward. You have yeah. to do these things to be rewarded. To it's grow. crazy. It's you crazy. Know, it's, it's, it's crazy that we accept that. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy that you can withhold information that you know will exonerate a defendant and you don't get tried with a crime. Yeah. They don't they they get they're scot free, they skate. They ever yeah. just sweeps it under the rug. Yeah. And it's that, all nothing. And that's the pain that we feel, you know, in our communities. Yeah. You know, a lot of people wanna know why, you know, people act and do certain things. You know, we become victims of these type of, uh, this type of hate, yes. you know what I mean? Where, because it's not that one person that's doing that time. It's the whole family. Right. His kids and yes. everybody. Yes. And it become a thing that we feel so deeply, you know what I mean? Where it really like, it really affects us in a way, man, where a lot of people get stuck and yes. they start expressing it through hate. Yes. You know, Stuck is the yeah. best term. Yeah. And it it, uh, it exacerbates and encourages this feeling of helplessness. Yeah. That doesn't give you an option to get out. And even if it's not the grand plan, if it's not, it, like, I'd like to look at conspiracy theories or any conspiracy on a step-by-step basis. And I think a lot of it is just the system itself, the way it's set up. Yeah. And I don't think these, these cops are involved in this grand conspiracy, but in a way they are. Because what they're doing, whether they know it or not, is encouraging this feeling of helplessness. Because they know that these cops aren't looking out for everybody. They're not looking out for you. They want to arrest you. All their job is to get as many people arrested as possible. Yeah. And a few cops figure their way through it and maintain a, a good reputation and good cops. But those, in a lot of cases, are the exception. Yeah. And what I witness... Uh... And, and I can't call them good, but what I witness is, like, I believe there's some some good cops out there. But 
As, I, when, as do I. Yeah, but, but those that witness, and I've witnessed so many of them turn their head, you know, when they see yes. corruption yes. going on. Yeah. To me, they are corrupt, just as corrupt as the one that's doing it. And yeah. a lot of them do that. A lot of them do that. It's yeah. the culture. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, the code of silence. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the culture of law enforcement. It's, uh, it's deeply, deeply unfortunate. You know, when you see the Floyd Mayweather, or the, uh, excuse me, um, uh, George Floyd death, when, when he, when that cop is leaning on his neck yeah. and the other cops are just standing around. Right. That's the code of silence. Oh, yeah. They're allowing it to happen. They know that dude's been on that guy's neck for eight fucking minutes, oh, and they're yeah. just standing there. They yeah. know. Yeah. But that is, they're all in it together. And a lot of times they feel like they have to stand together because the department doesn't defend them. Internal Affairs is always looking to bring them down, too. Yeah. And their job is to go out and get people. And they, they get together, and they, they tell themselves, the only people you can trust are other cops, and we've got to stick together, and these are the rules. And, you, and you're a young cop. If you get involved in that, mm-hmm. you realize early on, like, your ideas of, like, oh, yeah. law enforcement being this beautiful thing that's out there to protect communities, and, like, no, no, yeah. no, it's a game. Yeah. It's a game. The game is you got to arrest people. Yeah. You got to lie about how fast people are going. Yeah. You got to plant drugs in someone's car. It's true. It's true. And and they've been playing that game for so long. Forever. They, they just happened to catch, you know, George Floyd on on camera because of social media and they're catching so many things, but for example, of a 17-year-old girl. Yeah. One yeah. 17-year-old girl who was on the scene who happened to be filming it with her phone. Yeah. Well, for example, like this DEA ex-DEA agent Schumacher. You know, eight people that has been killed by his hands. You know, when we interviewed his lieutenant who had retired, he said he always questioned all of those murders that this guy had done because he would lie. His story would change. You know, I had an investigator that actually interviewed this guy. So I brought to the table concrete evidence such as that, you know. And when I was there talking to the head guys who wanted to know why I was accusing the uh, DEA agent as being a hitman. I'm like, well, give me a better name for him because it was totally unnatural for any officer to use his gun that many times, and it was no problem. So they just accepted that it was a part of the job? Oh, yeah. How did you get this guy off you? Well... (laughs) Eventually, what happened was after I came back from Washington, D.C., somebody was wise enough to, well, what they done was they went and searched his desk and his locker, him and Chad Scott, and they found evidence that I had told them about, such as a Rapalot piece, the jewelry, and different things like that. That they were planning. Yeah. Yeah. They had took this and kept it. So they put them on desk charge. They reprimanded them and put them on a desk job. And they decided that they didn't want to see he and I run into one another on the streets after I had, you know, uh, documented that I was in fear of my life. So that would have looked worse for them than anything. So they moved him. Matter of fact, he's out here somewhere, the owner of a gun store now. (laughs) (laughs) Retired. Oh my god. That's crazy. <laughs>
So, you know. That's crazy. But his other guy, his other sidekick, is on his way to prison. He was found guilty of uh, doing the same stuff. He never stopped. He was a younger guy. So he just, they moved him to Louisiana. And he just picked up the ball and started doing everything he was doing in Houston and in Texas and Louisiana, and they caught up with him. There's a guy named Michael Dowd who's been on my podcast before. He is uh, one of the people that was featured in a documentary about a corrupt, uh, corrupt pro, uh, police precinct called the 7-5 in New York City. It's an amazing documentary. Mm. And he came in and, and talked to me about it on the podcast. But the, literally his first day on the job, he watched cops murder somebody. And mm -hmm. they were told, you know, he was told, shut your fucking mouth. Like, this yeah. is what we do. Like, you're a cop now. Like, yeah. keep your fucking mouth shut. And he became a guy who was robbing drug dealers, yeah. selling drugs, protecting drug dealers, setting up hits. Yeah. I mean, it's madness. The well, that's what these guys mad. was yeah. doing. The same thing. It happens. Different toilet. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy that those are the people that we think of as the good guys. Yeah. Yeah, And so a guy like you, who legitimately is trying to escape that life, you get set up with Al Gore. Yeah. The guy who's running for president. Right. You get DEA hitmen coming after you, trying to set you up. Like, it's amazing that you maintain your calm through all this, that you, you've, you've, You've gotten through it without being insanely paranoid. Yeah. And I may be paranoid to a certain extent. <laughs> you might be right. You might not be paranoid. You might just be aware. You know, they, it definitely uh, was a situation that I feel scarred me to a certain extent. You know, there's no doubt about it. Uh, definitely. I'm in, a, I'm in a peaceful, more peaceful spot today. But in the midst of that journey and that war, you know, it's like every day you, you feel like in your mind you, you're legal and you're doing what's right. You're a law-abiding citizen. And, but the reality was you you damn if you do, if you do it this way, you damn if you, you know what I mean? I, I couldn't, like, figure it out, but I still chose to stay on the side of right. You yeah. know what I mean? I, yeah. I refuse to... Uh, to allow them to set me up or get me in darkness. And yeah. I understood that darkness, you know, if I campaign in darkness, I'm going to get elected in darkness. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. Well, it's very admirable. It really is. Because there's this, when you, you have this system that is, uh, they're, they're unsupportive of people escaping the life. They want to keep you connected in some way, shape, or form to crime. And they never want to think, well, here's this inspirational person that not only has escaped, but maybe will offer a beacon of light to other young dudes yeah. who are in that life who want to escape. A man who has become extremely successful. Look. Look what he does. Look what he does. He reads. He hustles. He's disciplined. And you can do this, too. And he yeah. has escaped the life. Yeah. Instead of that, yeah, they they look at you like a, a a hoop. They're trying to throw a ball through. They're just trying to score. Yeah. It was a. Uh, I got respect from a whole different generation of police officers. Now the younger police officers today, like 
now I would ride through the hood and I would get stopped and get harassed. Now they'll stop me and want an autograph. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, you ask me how this shift took place, I could only, uh, I would only say, I guess I survived the storm. You know yeah. what I mean? And they able to see that I was able to, like, inspire generations to come. I really feel that higher powers recognize uh, thinkers, people that know how to think, you know, like those that came before me, you know, uh, Martin Luther King, all the people they destroyed because they saw a movement taking place that they didn't like. I know I had a movement taking place and there's evidence that I had that movement taking place today, you know, because the South are who they are because of the foundation I laid. And, mm. you know, I had artists, I mean, CEOs like Cash Money, like Master P, Tony Draper, you know, Swisher House, Jay-Z, all of them watching my movement at Ground Zero, which inspired them to, you know, to come to fruition with their movements. So I think these guys saw that being bred in them. They, they know when they hop, the people in power know when they see the truth mm. at work. And uh, a lot of times they assign people to to destroy that before it come to fruition. And I think that was their assignment where I was concerned. It is interesting, though, that over the test of time, your true character has emerged and that people understand who you actually are and that the young cops, they actually like you now. Yeah. It's, a, it's a total role reversal. Yeah. Yeah, that was surprising to me, you know, where... <laughs> You know, because I was used to uh, being uh, racially profiled all the time because, you know, I ride clean. I like nice cars, you know, and uh, to be stopped, like, all the time without doing anything was, uh, I had to get used to that. You know what I mean? I had mm -hmm. to, like, okay, this is, like, uh, going to be a lifestyle. Like, I brush my teeth every day. You right. know what I mean? This is just going to happen. Even though, you know, I took a stand and, and I always voiced it on the hip-hop records. That was one of my uh, relief podiums where, you know, during the Ghetto Boys, I would get on the intros and, and put the spotlight on all the, the, the things they was doing to us because I knew it was happening all around the world and ghettos all around the world. And the people loved me for, uh, you know, expressing the pain that we all was feeling and what they were doing to all of us where the laws was being broken. And to this day, you know, they uh, love me for that. Well, I think your message is very important. I think your message of, uh, of discipline and of, of, of character and of how you've succeeded and how you've succeeded by following those principles is it's so important for people. And I think it's one of the most important things for someone who's stuck in poverty wanting to figure out a way to be a person like you to see that you've laid out these ground rules that you follow to see that you've laid out these steps that you've taken and to see that you've done it all in a book yeah and encourage people to not just read this book but read the books that inspired you right to get to the position that you're at yeah it's it's so valuable to, it's the best way to give back i mean you can give back in a lot of ways and they're all great but one of the best ways to give back is with honesty. 
and with with your your just you've learned some things and people can learn those things through you yeah so valuable right and that's my goal that's my goal to uh leave that with them i know when i'm you know when i cross over in heaven (laughs) you know this book will still be here yeah the blueprint you know the blueprint of uh you know my business life and my personal life on how i was able to you know conquer you know the odds and different things that were set up against me did you do an audiobook yes I love audiobooks. Yeah, man. me too. That's the only. That's how I do it right it's now. It's my favorite way yeah. because I'm in traffic, I'm driving around, and yeah. I can get those books in. Man, I love yeah, audio. It's a big deal for me, man. In the sauna, at the gym, yeah. audiobooks are. It just makes regular time educational. You can get something in. Yeah, and I'm reading it, so I'm not a speed reader. Beautiful. Just like I'm speaking. Beautiful. <laughs> I love when people read their own books. I hate when someone else reads it. Yeah. If you had some dorky actor. Right. your book you yeah. know like respect Imagine it was the fall that. of 1988 and i'm sitting the fuck out of here <laughs> right imagine that oh i've, I've imagined i've, I've read it i've seen it rather yeah. listen to it it's terrible it's my, terrible my fans would be disappointed oh devastated yeah yeah they would they would rather hear me struggle with the reading, then <laughs> no. Well, you have a such a distinctive voice too. It's like yeah. very, I think it's very important that people, especially when it's an autobiography, read your own books. Mm-hmm. The only person who should never read his own books is Stephen King. <laughs> I, I, Stephen King is a great yeah. writer, but is terrible at reading his books. Right. But he, those are fiction. You know, you need an yeah. actor to read those fiction books. Right. It's a, it's a different jam. It's yeah. a different thing. One of, one of your things that I know that you uh, are very passionate about is raising up the South. Right. That means a lot to you. Why is that? Um, because in the beginning, I had to, like, blaze a trail. You know, it was, uh, it was a struggle. You know, uh, New Yorkers was dominating our airways. They was dominating all the DJ spots, the clubs. You know, they was relentless with yeah. their hustle. I give yeah. them credit, you know what I mean? And they was, like, spreading their troops everywhere, you know what I mean? So with me having to, uh, like, make them believers and change that situation, I'm a little more passionate about the journey than, than most because I understood how we got booed and when we went to New York. And, you mm. know, they just didn't, they felt like we was too country. They wouldn't play our records, you know. I I go to them and you know plead with them, you know, do this, do that. And it came to a situation where I stopped asking, you know what I mean? I stopped asking, and I had to figure out a way to uh, run them out of my city. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, just point blank, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's what brought about change in Houston is, you know, because my thing was give us a chance. If the people don't like us, then that's acceptable, but not giving us a chance and, you know, playing New York music and acting like as if we not in part of, you know, my people not special, you know, we can't have that. Well, the ghetto boy sound was so aggressive and so good. And it put fifth ward on the map. I mean, people started talking about fifth ward after the ghetto boys came out. Yeah. And when like we can't be stopped and do it like a geo, like there was there were songs that were undeniable. They were undeniable. Yeah. And it just like everybody was like, I don't give a fuck what you say. That's <laughs> that's a 
good goddamn record. <laughs> right. You know, it's like right. it just was undeniable. Yeah. Being undeniable is at the end of the day, and I I think that's also what's happened with you with these the young cops that appreciate and respect you now. It's like it's undeniable. It's yeah. Just, over time, yeah, your, your true nature gets exposed. You know, you can get slandered and attacked, and they go after you and try to arrest you and all these different things. But you survived all that. Right. And over time, your true nature is exposed. Yeah, yeah. We wrote this song, the Ghetto Boy song called "We Can't Be Stopped." Yeah. And I think we named the album "We Can't Be Stopped." Yeah. And that's because we was going through that struggle. You know yeah. what I mean? With all the enemies trying to stop us they was doing all kinds of things to try and stop us and you know we were in a mind frame and like-minded you know sometimes i think i made their heart uh, skip a beat with some of the decisions <laughs> i made but uh, at the end of the day when they saw fruit bear for taking that stand then they became more of a believer where that was the concern every also. army needs a great general yeah yeah and sometimes those decisions have to be made True. Well, it all worked out clearly, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, it really did. When you look back on on your legacy, I mean, obviously you look to the future, um, and you, you continue to to move forward. But as you look back, you've got to be happy with what you've done, particularly with uh, with with the rap industry. Oh yeah, most definitely. I'm I'm very proud of where the South stand today. You know, one of my favorite quote quotes a lot of times in it. You kind of get under the skin of my East Coast and West Coast homies, but I tell them the East Coast a piece of bread, the West Coast a piece of bread, and down south we the meat. Y'all can't have a sandwich without us. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny to me how people just get so caught up in East Coast and West Coast because it yeah. really only happened in rap. It never happened with rock and roll, right? You know, it never happened with sports. I mean, it did a little yeah. bit with sports in some yeah. teams, but. With the, the big thing with with rap music was always East Coast versus West Coast until you guys came around. Right. Yeah. I'm like really familiar with with that beef. Um, I wrote about it in my book of uh, how me and Puffy, you know, had a meeting and uh, they wanted me to mediate a meeting where him and Suge was concerned. Mm. You know, with that was after Tupac. And all of these people, you know, had got killed. And uh, it was something that I wanted to do, but I couldn't really get, you know, uh, between it because, you know, things just didn't add up properly. And I don't believe in stepping in between something when I don't have all the information. Mm. Yeah. That's got to be extremely difficult, right? You were in the middle of, like, a legitimate war where two of the all-time greats yeah. were murdered. Yeah, I was asked to uh, be in the middle of it. And and uh, after Tupac was murdered, uh, one of the things I'd done was I heard Puffy and Biggie was in L.A. shooting a video. So I was on my tour bus, and I turned it all the way around. I think I was close to Phoenix. And I turned it around just to go and have a conversation with Biggie and Puffy to alert them that they were in a place that I didn't feel that they should have been in. And, you know, I went there and had a conversation with both of them just to kind of put them on notice that, you know, this ain't the place to be right now. And, and that was before Biggie was killed? Yeah. How long before it was? I think a few weeks 
think a few weeks before. And, uh, you know, sometimes, and I know Puffy meant well, and I know Biggie mean well, sometimes a lot of individuals are what I call surface deep, where the streets are concerned, which simply mean you don't, you understand them to a certain depth, you know what I mean? But I understood that that wasn't definitely L.A. That wasn't a good place to be because my ears was to the street and, you know, I just wanted to echo it. It was on my spirit to to let them know, and I did. And uh, unfortunately, you know, it didn't save him, but everybody can learn from those mistakes moving forward. Yeah, it's a devastating loss, The both of them. Yeah. I mean, what they left behind, you know, to this day. Yeah. If you got a Mount Rushmore of hip-hop, those two dudes are on there. Right. There's no no doubt about it. Oh, yeah. Two brilliant guys. Brilliant. Yeah. There's a video of Biggie on the street that I watch all the time when he was 17 years old. A piece of paper in his hand with his lyrics. Yeah. Rapping his ass off oh, yeah. at 17 years old. Yeah. It's incredible. When you watch the video, you're like, what talent. Yeah. What power that yeah. dude had. Yeah. Just vocal power. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And Tupac was the same way. Same I mean, way. Them guys, man, you know, two geniuses. Yeah. You know, that never really fully came to fruition. Uh, That's the saddest thing about true genius. If you look at all the people, whether it's Hendrix or Jim Morrison or Tupac or Biggie, they all died young, man. Yeah, Janis Joplin. We got to. We still to this day can go back and look at their stuff, but they all died young. It's true. Yeah, that's true. It's a weird world we live in, my friend. Oh you yeah. Know? But I think that the the world gets less weird when when someone like you is made through all the hoops and ladders and and and. and, and gotten to a point where you can kind of uh let people know what you've been through right right i think it's very powerful yeah yeah no it it definitely is i'm uh what one would call a testimony yeah and you know i try to be a voice of inspiration and hope for uh for my beginning with my community you know what i mean i uh i'm a person that you know stayed in contact with where my community is concerned you know that's why i built the recreation center the boxing gym a school you know because i never wanted to be one of those people that disown where i was from and that's that's what law enforcement was trying to get me to do you know Mm. i would have conversations with them guys when they would stop me and pull me over why don't you just leave you made it why do you come Mm. you know what i mean other words go away you know, and they had a problem with me uplifting. You know, it's it's an interesting thing when you may, they would see a guy that was on the corner selling dro- drugs uh, transition to hip-hop, whether it was from rapping or working through hip-hop, and now that guy is driving a Mercedes. Now he's driving something totally different. And that would anger a lot of the officers who wasn't getting paid that kind of money so that mm-hmm. he become like a a big target from what he done in the past yeah they never let that go 
Yeah, that's uh, yeah. that envy of being a, a police officer that's getting paid a shitty salary. Yeah. Watching some dude who you know used to break the law. <laughs> yeah. And now he's balling out of control. It's a cold thing, man. It's a cold thing. <laughs> and wow. they hate that, man. They like recognize the limitations of your profession. Yeah. You can't. They be like, you can't change. You're doing the same thing. There's no way you can change. Mm. There's no way I'm going to allow you to change if I can help it. That's an anti-human sentiment. Yeah. That a person can't change. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's one of the, the, the worst things you could say to a person. Because all of us are inspired by people who do change. Yeah. And what's even worse is locking a man up so long where you don't give him an opportunity yeah. to change. Because right. it's a lot of brothers that evolve behind walls. You know what I mean? And it's way less years than they have to mm-hmm. serve. They actually get it and snap into, okay, I got it now. I got right. the I got the message. I got the lesson. Yeah. And uh, you know, the way the system is built is is really unforgiving, you know, and you know, like the brother, you know, our brother Larry Hoover right now, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, you know, he's a brother that that I know has changed inside, but whether they want to give him the opportunity to, you know, be free and execute, you know, the wisdom and the change that has taken place in him and a lot of other political prisoners. You know, I, I think the system is uh, is just it's crazy that it's so unforgiving. It's not just unforgiving. It's it's thoughtless. There's no thought put into rehabilitating this. The, the amount of people that get actually rehabilitated in prison yeah. is minuscule. And it's usually through self-determination. Like they decide that they're going to re- rehabilitate themselves. Mm-hmm. The comprehensive program of changing a person, educating them as to what happened to them and how they can benefit society if they can get through this. Right. And how they can teach other people that have also fallen in the same pitfalls. Hey, you can get through this too. Like, you don't have to be who you are right now. Yeah. Who you are right now is who you are because of circumstance and because of life and bad luck and bad decisions. But that doesn't mean that's who you are forever. Yeah. And there's no rehabilitation. The real effort to rehabilitate people is non-existent. There's some people that get rehabilitated through prison, yeah. whether it's through the negative reinforcement of they, they they never want to be locked up in a cage again or through other people that they meet inside the jail or through books they read inside the jail. But there's no real comprehensive effort to change people and help people and educate people. Yeah. The thought of being like lost and hopeless. Yeah. Then the, the, the idea that a person can't change, that's the most non-human idea ever. Because yeah. the best people all change. When, when you're young... You, you hopefully the foolish shit that you do when you're 10 you're not going to do when you're 20 the dumb shit you do when you're 20 you're not going to do when you're 30 yeah. you're going to learn from every step of the way you would everyone changes oh yeah the driving force behind that is racism you know mm-hmm. what i mean it was the same with the slaves you know they didn't they never wanted to teach them they never wanted to see them evolve they only wanted them to be a slave and you know to me that's the mechanism of the system right now where, you know, the the inmates, a lot of them are concerned. Of course, you know, there are some that, you know, (laughs) may deserve different things, but this thing where drugs is concerned, this whole nonviolent situation that they got going on is as racist as it gets. 
It's disgusting. Yeah. Imagine a, a, a university where no one graduated any smarter. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it wouldn't exist. They wouldn't allow it to happen. It wouldn't exist. Yeah. So there's got to be a thought in your head that a prison system where n almost no one graduates now, that's and leaves one. rehabilitated. That's, 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 a, that's a hell of an analogy you just gave. You know what I mean? A university where no one evolved or got smarter. It's, you would say, okay, whoever set this shit up, you fucked yeah. up. This is terrible. Yeah. This is poorly designed, terribly executed. And you would look at the motivations. Like, who's, are you guys making money off of yeah. this? Yeah. And no one is getting, are you really protecting society hmm. by making people better criminals, locking them up for 10 years, then releasing them again? Hmm. Are you really? Yeah. I don't think you are. I think yeah. you failed. Yeah. The whole system is a failure. Yeah. Yeah. True statement. Yeah. yeah. And, and where the colleges are concerned, they never would allow that because that's their loved ones. Yes. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> that's the difference, right? Yeah, that is the difference, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's weird because like criminal justice reform just gets sort of like cursory mentioned by politicians. <laughs> it's a cold game they got going on, man. And that's, that's what... Um, you know, one of the reasons uh, I call myself a Republicrat, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's hard for me to uh, just jump on a bandwagon when I see these different mixed signals going on where, you know, my people are concerned, you yeah. know. And I'd be looking for one that will stand up and not twist when he walk, you know what I mean? Stand yeah. up and be a real man and, uh, you know, authentic with the movement and it's hard to to see them people in this game that I watch you know it's just it's hard it's always you know some 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 uh some things going on that's under the radar there's so many influences by the time these people get into any position of power they're so compromised that they gotta kind of follow the steps that mm -hmm. are laid out for them no one really ever says hey look at this mm. let's look at this and let's lay it out because this is a terrible terrible place this is a terrible scenario we have with criminal justice it's terrible look let's look at how many people that are wrongfully convicted let's how many look, how many people that are executed were innocent let's look at how many people that have been railroaded by corrupt prosecuting attorneys mm. look, look at how many people who've been just stuck in jail for no fault of their own mm. It's crazy. No, it's a lot of them. It's a and lot it's of them. crazy that a, a guy like you who gets through, but it's beautiful that now you're celebrated, you know, yeah. but it's crazy. But it makes sense. I mean, in, in their little game of trying to arrest people, they're yeah. like this dude's still going to the hood, even though now he's wealthy and successful. Why is he still doing that? Yeah. He's setting up these community centers and boxing gyms. The fuck out of here. He's trying to make some money. He's doing yeah. something. Yeah. He's laundering money. Yeah. And they have this cynical perspective. Instead of having the perspective like, that guy, we should ha have him talk to other kids. Yeah. We should let everybody know, like, this is possible. Right. Everybody who is down on their luck, who's not doing well, is in a bad situation, you can look to the people that escaped and then profited and, and, and thrived right. and then became incredibly successful. And that, that should be your motivation. That right. should be your blueprint. You know, no, it is. And <clears throat> their blueprint, a lot of the times, 
is just like you say, let's figure out how to destroy him. Yeah. Let's, let's let go every three-letter word, you know, R-S-D-V, D-E-A, F-B-I, mm-hmm. P-H-C-I-A. Yeah, yep. all of yep. them. Let's, let's let them loose on him to see if they can put mm-hmm. something together yeah. to destroy him. You know, Especially they when you become real profitable. Yeah. Especially when you're rolling around in beautiful cars, living in a beautiful house and what, why the owl? You have this beautiful owl chain. Why oh, owls? This is this is Drake oh. uh, symbol. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is Drake. You know, my son discovered Drake. So Really? Yeah. My son Jazz Prince. Wow. Is, we brought Drake to uh, the United States and uh that's how he got started. Well that makes sense. Yeah. Why is Drake in the owls? Well, I think owls is a powerful symbol. You know what I mean? It's a lot of strength where owls are concerned. Yeah. You know, I like eagles. I like eagles too. <laughs> you know, but you know these owls are some owls strong. Owls are pretty badass, yeah. and they fuck yeah. people up at night. <laughs> you know, they they fuck up birds at night. One of my favorite videos was yeah. these hawks sitting in a nest at night, and yeah. some owl swoops in out of the darkness and snatches one of them. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. they cold blooded at night. Yeah, we have this idea about them that they're like these wise creatures that are like you know yeah thoughtfully looking over the land no they're f- out there fucking up rabbits and <laughs> killing everything they can owls are vicious man <laughs> they are vicious they are. predators yeah and drake you know this is his this is his brand you mm. know maybe i can get him to explain to you what's <laughs> really behind bring him in somebody. bring him yeah. in i'd <laughs> sure. love to i'd love to talk to him yeah. listen brother i appreciate you very much man and uh, i want everybody to know that uh, the art and science of respect it's out right now. You can get it. You can get it in book form. You can get it in audio form. Loyalty, your wine, this Cabernet is fantastic. Yeah. It's delicious. Enjoy it. And uh, I can't wait to try your champagne and yeah. uh, your Merlot. And uh, thanks for coming in here, man. Hey, appreciate Thank it, you. bro. Thank you very much, brother. Thank you. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.